And hello and welcome. I am Jake Novak. You are listening to the Nachum Siegel Network's special, live, all English election results show from the Israel National Election. National election. election singular, by the way, because you go to the polls and you only get to vote for one thing. So for those of you who don't like confusing ballots, the Israel elections are for you. Election is for you. Uh, this is going to be a live show with live results. And the reason why we've started right now at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, New York Time, is because the polls have finally just closed in Israel. And here's what we can tell you so far. Uh, and I just want to get this out before I even mention some of the great guests and some of the other things we're going to be doing. First off, we can tell you that turnout, turnout for the election, which is something that they do in Israel, is a cool thing they do in Israel. Every hour they give you an update about what percentage of the eligible voters have already cast their ballot in the Israel election. And we, uh, so far, the, la- the last number we have is for 8 o'clock Israel time. So that was two hours ago. We're about three percentage points higher than the last election, more than that for the election before that. So there's been strong turnout. We can tell you that. Um, we're also about to get these first exit polls at, that we get from Israel. And I can give you some results right now. Now, before I give you the numbers here on the Nachum Siegel Network, I want you to understand, as we've all understood it for those of who, who have followed Israel elections in the past, but let's say this just is an important disclaimer. These, these early exit poll results that are released only when the polls are closed have been wrong many times. However, I will say this. They have been wrong typically in favor of a leftward swing. In other words, the exit polls seem have typically overrepresented the left's final vote. What we have right now, and... In this, on this election show, again, I'm Jake Novak. I haven't told you my name yet, I don't think, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. So what we're having right now from the exit polls in Israel, I can, I can now announce, they are predicting 37 seats for Likud, which would be an increase of four or five seats from last time. That would be a big jump. That would be a five-seat jump from, la- from the last election in September. And 32 seats for blue and white. Uh, and actually, 33 actually for blue and white. So that would be pretty much where they were. That would be a drop for them. So at, at this point, it looks like good news for Likud, good news for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But again, I must stress here on the Nachum Siegel Network, I must stress that these exit polls have been uh, unreliable in the past. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing here on this program tonight for the next several hours as we go through these results and get the more reliable numbers. We are going to have a series of guests, both people who are political analysts, people who are experts in the land of Israel, and they, some of them are going to be live in studio here at the Nachum Siegel Network Studios here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Some of them will be on the phone. And one of those guests on the phone right now, who will be joining us now, is the person who I owe almost all of my Zionist education to. I can't leave that part out. Uh, Rabbi Yotav Eliach, who is the author of a, really a must-read book if you are any in any way interested in the Middle East and in the land of Israel. He's the author of the book, Judaism, Zionism, and the land of Israel. And Rabbi Yotav Eliach joins us right now. And I'm not going to ask Yotav about these unreliable exit polls, but I did tell him, uh, as we discussed this program earlier, that I wanted him to tell us a little bit about the fe- what is the mood in the state of Israel and what is the situation in the state of Israel. And I wonder, Yotav, if you could tell us now, going into this election day, what were you looking for as the main sort of feeling of the country culturally, obviously politically as well, but what, what do you think was really the major issues going into the election today? Well, I think Israelis on one hand, you know, there was already the sense of, uh, you know, gallows humor already. There were so many jokes and there was a meme going around today that, you know, in 2053, 
at the 73rd round, you have Gantz looking like he's 120 years old and Bibi looking like he's 120 years old. So on one hand, I think Israelis are, you know, they have this dark humor that I think a lot of it comes from their reality, from being in the army, and this political situation that they're all smart enough to know is a theater of the absurd. But it's almost like there's a split screen, I think, in, in Israel, and then that split screen exists in everybody's mind. And on one hand, this is insane, this is crazy, and how long is this going to go on? On the other hand, <clears throat> saying the same exact words with, you know, with a serious tone, this is crazy. This is absurd. How much longer can this go on? <laughs> At the end of the day, we need to have a functioning government. Uh, I don't think people realize that budgets have not been handed out. Mm-hmm. Every ministry's budget has been frozen. So many things in the state are simply not happening. And that includes police issues, security issues, farming issues, or educational issues. And this, so the idea of a frozen government is really beginning to get to people. On the other hand, I think there was the sense of apathy, but I don't think Israelis are as apathetic as you know, some of the Israeli media made it sound even. I think Israelis, I think by this third time, I think everybody's hoping there won't be a fourth time. I think there is this sense that uh, there are many pending issues that Israel needs to take care of. One of them is obviously the deal that Trump put on the table. Number two is the growing situation with Iran becoming more desperate and uh, perhaps becoming more reckless and becoming more of a problem, and that involves Hamas, that involves Hezbollah, that involves Lebanon, that involves Syria, that involves Iran itself, not to mention Hamas, and not to mention, you know, ISIS, who's in Sinai. So I think there, there are a lot of things that have pushed Israelis today to perhaps not be as apathetic as people thought, and not be not have the gallows humor, but understand you know we got to take care of business, and everybody got to go out there and vote, and, and we have to make sure we have a government. Hopefully, I don't know within the next seven eight hours, we'll have an idea of where we are. Right. So that to me, I think one of the headlines of what you just mentioned was this misconception that all these elections would drive Israelis away from the polls, and I and I had the same impression that you did going into this third round is that. The frustration with not getting a real result and and being able to get a clear coalition path out of the last two elections might actually drive more Israelis to the polls as opposed to apathy. It would get them more realizing of the fact, more more understanding that, you know, you got to go out and vote here and finally get a decision here. You know, maybe it's because there wasn't enough of a turnout last time that we ended with this deadlock as opposed to, and by the way, this might be unique to Israel. If we had had similar situations like this in the United States, we don't have a parliamentary government, so we really couldn't have the exact time, type of situation. But if we had these kinds of situations in the United States, I don't, maybe there would be a, you know, an, an apathetic response. But I think Israelis are a little bit different when it comes to this kind of thing. So there's that. Um, again, you're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network's special live coverage of the Israeli election results. All we can report to you now are a couple of things. One is that the turnout, as Rabbi Eliach was just mentioning, the turnout higher than expected. And again, Yotav Eliach is joining us now for this first half hour, the author of the really must-read book, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel, which explains so much of more than just the last couple of years. It's, it's, quite, it's more than a century's worth of information of Israeli politics and, and, and more, of course. But what I also can report to you is that that turnout was strong. But what we can also report now is that these exit polls that come out right when the polls close, and they, again, can be incredibly misleading, they can be wrong. But what we're seeing right now is Likud projected at 37 seats in the government, blue and white at 33. The Arab list 
doing very strongly again, as they did in the last election at 14. But if you take three right wing parties, not including Lieberman's um, Israel Beitenu party, if you don't include them, then that would lead to nine seats for Shas, seven seats for Yamina, and Otsma Yehudit, I believe that's the, the, the last one, would get seven. Is that correct? So no, they, no. No, that, what, what's Otsma the last Yehudit. one? Yamina. Yamina, seven. This is Mayor Weingarten, by the way, joining us right now. Shas. Shas. Aguda. 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 That's what And Likud will give you 60. That's right. So it's Aguda, Shas, and Yamina. So these are two religious parties and then one of the further right parties. Added to the 37 Likud has, again, in this unreliable exit poll, would be, give them 60 seats. Of course, that's one seat shy of where they would need to be to form a coalition. And, of course, the, the big question, as some people call him a Svengali, Avigdor Lieberman would be at six seats, which would be more than he got in April, but less than he got in September. So that would be a step back from him. I want to ask you, Otav, because you're, you're, you're an expert on the cultural makeup of Israel, the demographic makeup of Israel. Can you explain to us... Who are who? Who are the typical Israelis who support Avigdor Lieberman? We know that they tend to be Russian, but I, I don't feel like that's the full story. What can you tell me about them? Again, it's uh, polls are misleading on, on all topics and issues. The sense I have is, I think I know what he's trying to attract. I think that's a fair answer that I can give you because I don't know exactly the breakdown. Maybe we'll know it after this election. He is still attracting a lot of the Russians who met Aliyah in the 90s. Uh, that is still his core constituency. But I think he's tried to rebrand himself as the secular right-winger, meaning, you know, uh, by definition, there is the sense in Israel to be right-wing. You're more connected to God, country, Bible, history. And by the way, his wife is religious. Let's <laughs> let's be clear about it. As, as Lieberman, his, his wife is religious. He lives in Yehuda. Uh, in the expanded Gush Etzion area, so he's an interesting character. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what he's trying to attract is what would be the equivalent almost <clears throat> of a secular libertarian right-winger, meaning I want to be tough against Hamas, I want to be tough against Hezbollah, I want to be tough against Israel enemies, I, I, I do not trust the PA, Hamas is obviously anathema to us, but I got a big problem with the Haredim. So if you believe in that and you don't and you don't want to be blackmailed by you know UTJ you know uh, United Torah Judaism or Shas then I'm your man hoping to pick up some of the elite secular Israelis who don't have a left-wing bend when it comes to foreign policy but have a right-wing bend but at the same time are at least in his mind disgusted with the Haredim I'm your man I want to I think that's who he's trying to add to his Russian base. Again, you're you're listening to live coverage of the Israel election results. We're here in the Nachum Siegel Network studios here on the Lower East Side. I'm Jake Novak. Joining me in the studio right now, uh, for, well, first on the phone, we have Rabbi Yotav Eliach, and I'm going to ask him another question in just a moment. But in the studio right now, we also have from the Colchester Group and a former aide to President George H.W. Bush, Jim Nuzzo. Um, hi, hi, Jake. How are you? That's Jim. Uh, we have two mayors. Uh, I, I apologize for the duplicity. I'm it, the other mayor. Yeah, we have <laughs> we have Mayor Weingarten, who you've heard give us some important information during this interview as well. That was Mayor DeSantis. And we also have Mayor Furtick, who was also doubling as our producer and co-anchor today. And he's been looking at the results for us and doing a tremendous job on the phones as well. And we'll have a lot of other guests. That's uh, that's Mayor Furtick. If I can interject. Yeah, go ahead, Mayor this Weingarten. Just came, I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring the yes. Israeli television networks. And... Uh, this came out of uh, Arutz Echad, 
that Lieberman called Netanyahu to congratulate him wow. and said, we will continue to cooperate with the right, which could be his way of saying, okay, I give. <laughs> yeah, that would be very interesting. And, so and you know, he's the reason that we've had all these elections going on, because he, he, he defected from the right. If he would have just stuck with the right, we would have had one election way back in April. Yeah. I want to touch on something that Yotab didn't say just now, but I've, I've heard you say before in other interviews we've done together and, and I put together, and that was something really important. One thing we didn't mention. The, we know that Lieberman has been campaigning a lot on his push for a Haredi draft. And I know that Yotav and I are of the same mind of this, but I'm going to let Yotav expound, expound on it more than I am. But the point is, is that I think we can all agree that we want to have the Haredim as a community more involved in Israeli life from every level. However, it really needs to be more of an evolution than a revolution. And I wonder if you want to explain that a little bit, Yotav, about why a, a blanket draft law just doesn't make sense, even from the point of view of people who, who do want the Haredim to join in, into Israeli life a little bit more. First of all, um, I, you know, thank you for bringing that up. I think it is a very important issue. Um, it's not going to be a revolution. It will be an evolution. There is a war, a cultural war, an educational war going on within the Haredi world in terms of should we be serving the state of Israel. And the fact is that the needle has moved from anti-Zionist to non-Zionist to Zionist. There are more and more Rabbanim within the Haredi world not just the Sephardic part, which has a tendency to be more open to this, but on the Ashkenazic part. People who understand that they are part of Medinat Israel, and it tends to be the younger generation, uh, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, who see themselves as citizens of the state of Israel. They want to continue to be Haredim, but Haredim are also part of the Medina. So I happen to be involved in, uh, in, in a small group of people who have been having private, quiet talks with some leaders in the Haredi world, and the Haredi world itself is interested. They want to find a way, and if I would, I, the, I think the prototype that's going to end up happening down the line will be Haredi has their style yeshivas, mm-hmm. where no one's going to draft them immediately out of high school, no one wants them to come right away, they need to have yeshiva where they get to learn, and they'll probably get to change. Those who are more serious, you get to stay and learn a little bit longer, like religious Zionists do in Merkaz Arab. Some guys didn't learn for four or five years, and then they get drafted. And then there's some guys who learn for ten years. Then there's certain guys who, after two or three years, will find something for it to do to help the state of Israel. So the answer is not to drag people through the streets who don't want to be drafted, and the answer is not to harate them to beat up Israeli soldiers who come back to the community and to make them feel as if they're outcasts. The answer is, and it's happening slowly but surely, more and more Haredim want to be part of the mainstream. They want to be part of the defense of Israel. I'll give you a great example. You all know what Zaka is. Now, Zaka involves tens of thousands of Haredi men predominantly. Years ago, under the rule of the leadership of Meshi Zahab, who used to be very anti-Zionist, who's changed his tune, they went to the IDF home front and requested that Zaka be considered part of the IDF home front. Wow. And that was, that, that request was granted. So these tens of thousands of men who are part of Zaka are very proud to be part of the IDF home front. They 
considered a badge of honor. So they do want to serve this state, and they do want to be part of it. And wearing an IDF uniform is just one of the ways they can do it. We're trying to find intelligent ways. There are many ways to serve the state of Israel that they're open to, and at the same time, not destroy their community, their sense of, uh, you know, fidelity to Torah and Halakha, etc. So I think, I'm throwing it out, you know, quickly here, they'll end up being a different type, but a version of Haredi Hester Yeshivot. Again, you're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network here. I am Jake Novak, your host for this very sp- special live coverage of Israeli election results. And I just want to give you our headlines that we have right now. The exit polls, which, again, we must stress, have been unreliable in the past. However, I will add this caveat. They have been unreliable in the past in favor of the left. In other words, if you see an exit poll that seems to favor the right, it's possible that that will end up being even better news for the right. But, again, totally unreliable. But at this point, there does seem to be some very strong confidence, and this can change, from the the Likud and overall right-wing bloc. We are seeing exit polls that show Likud projected to get 37 seats. That would be a big jump for them from the last election. Blue and white down to 32 seats. And we are seeing that when you combine some of the other parties, and I am not including uh, Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu party, right now it would be, it would, it, it would, seem to uh, to indicate that the Likud block, that would be a block that would be led by Likud, has 60 seats. That would obviously put them just one seat away from a coalition. I want to add one little extra bit of, of, of breaking news for as much as this is worth. Benjamin Netanyahu, on his own Twitter feed, has just tweeted a one-word, one-emoji tweet that says Toda, which is, of course, Hebrew for thank you, and a heart emoji. So he's certainly feeling confident right now. Uh, again, that can change. Um, we've been talking to Yotav Eliach, author of the must-read book, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel. This is still a relatively new published book, but it is the life work of Yotav Eliach, and I'm very proud to have him on t- tonight, but today, because this is someone who started my formal Zionism education. Like most Jewish day school kids or people who grew up in a traditional Jewish home, we certainly get an, a decent amount of Zionism in a spiritual way at home. But as I learned very quickly at high school level age, you start, you need to have an academic, factual-based, evidence-based education as well, especially in this day and age. If you're going to send your kids into a college or out into the outside world or the work world, you better arm them or equip them, is a better word, with the facts. And, and Yotav Eliach, that's really his life's work. I don't think I'm, I'm overstepping my, my boundaries by saying that. Um, he's just been answering a question about this Haredi draft, which is a big reason why we've had all these elections. It's not the only reason. Avigdor Lieberman also bolted the government back uh, last year uh, on a, a, a dispute about what to do in Gaza, and that's another thing to, for us to discuss. But the one final thing I want to ask Yotav about, because he knows about this as well, and this is something that I've discussed with people, both Jewish, non-Jewish, Israeli, non-Israeli, as Listen, the Israeli university system and education system has a lot of pluses and has a lot of minuses. But one of the things that is becoming so clear, especially in the investment world, but I think in the other parts of of the work world as well, is that the true path to success in Israel runs through the IDF. Now, some of that comes from the skills they learned in the IDF. Some of that comes from the training. A lot of it, though, also, I think, comes from the connections. Listen, you you spend your days around with, with highly skilled, smart women and men. You're going to do well, and that's something that not a lot of countries can offer. So I was wondering if, when we talk about the Haredi situation, I don't, from a, from a military standpoint, I can't believe there's ever been a chief of staff in Israel who's woken up in the middle of the night saying, gee, I wish I had more you know, Haredim in, in the combat units. I think the issue here, to me, is more of an economic issue. If we can get more Haredim into this national types of service options that you were just talking about, Yotav, then that wouldn't only not only would that make for a more uni- unified country culturally, but economically, I think that would strengthen the country. I wonder what you thought, what your thoughts are on that. 
I, I agree with you. I think there are two factors that are pushing the Haredi world into wanting to be part of the state of Israel. And yes, the IDF is not just a military operation. It's a social institution. So the poverty that has almost been self-inflicted in the Haredi world is something that has driven a large part of the Haredi world to realize, and their rabbis as well, that there's, there's no reason historically, politically, socially, and halakhically, according to Jewish law, mm-hmm. to create so many generations of poverty. It makes no sense. Okay? Number two, you need to have productive citizens in the state of Israel, and they realize that demographically they're growing. And they understand that it's one thing when you're a small minority, but 20, 30 years down the line, they're going to end up being close to 30% of Israel's population. So it's economically not viable for them, nor would the budget be able to handle the welfare lines and the, and the roles that would be if you have so many people not working. On the other part, there are many Haredim who really, really do understand. They may not say Tzilal Dinah right now, but they do see the state of Israel as really something <clears throat> wonderful and positive for them. Okay? They, they're, they're, they grasp the fact that if they look around the world in the post-Holocaust reality, there would be no Torah. There would be no Orthodox Judaism without the reestablished state of Israel. And there is no place in the world friendlier to Torah than the state of Israel. They're aware of that. They're rational. And then the third part is... <clears throat> They really do want to be part of Israeli society. They do desperately want to be part of Israeli society. For example, a few years ago, a young group of Haredim, young I mean under the age of 40, decided to hold their own Yom Hazikaron celebration. They rented out the Begin Museum, and it was by invitation only. And they were hoping to have, you know, two, three hundred people. They ended up having probably close to a thousand. They ended up setting up loudspeakers outside the museum, and ever since then, the number of Haredim throughout the country, in one way or another, who are commemorating Yom Hazikaron, is growing. They do want to be part of the state of Israel. And there's a war going on within their community. How can this be done? Is it, you know, are the Zionists Tame? Are they not Tame? More and more, there's a feeling we're brothers and sisters. And there's a way to work. Do you know that the chief of staff of the president of Israel, Rivlin, is a Haredi woman? Did you know that? No, no, did not. The chief of staff running the president's office is a Haredi woman with a husband who wears a Bekatra, and I think they have seven or eight kids. Wow. You would never have imagined this 20, 30 years ago, but that is part of Israeli society today. Well, these are fantastic comments from Yotav Eliach. I want to thank you for joining us for this half hour. Getting us a, I think that it's important to, listen, you, you could spend several hours talking about all the cultural currents running through Israel, but because this is yet another Avigdor Lieberman triggered election, I think it's important that we spent this time discussing the Haredi community, its role, and some, so much of what you just said is just not reported anywhere. I mean, not even in the Israeli news media do you hear enough of this. So I thank you, Rabbi Yotav. Again, please get his book. It's available on Amazon, a lot of other websites, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel. This is Yotav Elias' life work explaining not only, it's, it, I mean, it's it's basically an entire college course, three college courses maybe, worth of information, but really presented in very uh, easily uh, digestible uh, uh, bites, and, and each chapter is really a, a book in and of itself. I thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we can uh, speak to you again a little bit later tonight when we have some more solid results, but if not, we'll speak to you again soon either way. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Jake. Looking forward to speak to you later. Thank you.
Again, you're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network's live, unique, groundbreaking coverage of the Israeli election results. The polls closed in Israel 23 minutes ago, and that 24 minutes ago, I should say. And what we have seen so far, the big news has been these exit polls, which come out once the polls close. And again, they have been unreliable in the past, but we are getting some interesting exit polling right now, all showing what looks like very good news for the Likud party and for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. One of the people joining me in the studio right now is a very familiar name and voice here on the Nachum Siegel Network, Mayor Weingarten, the host of the Israel Show here. And Mayor has been, the entire time since 3 o'clock, very furiously looking at his computer and phone and laptop and iPad and all that, getting a lot of information. So, Mayor, tell me what you're seeing right now that really jumps out at you. So, uh, I'm actually listening right now to the Israeli broadcast, but I took that out. Um, first of all, one of the reasons that the polls, the early po- exit polls aren't so accurate is that they close those early exit polls at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. The voting doesn't end till 10 o'clock. That's right. And there are two blocks that are pretty well known as being late voters, right. the Arabs and the right, <laughs> the Likud voters. Right. So it's hard to tell. It could be, and that might be the reason why it always skewed more to the left. Right. But it could very well be that there'll be some change. However, all three Israeli news uh, networks, and there are only three, so there are only three exit polls, all of them have 60 for the, for the block of the right wing, and it'll, it'll take less than the time that, it'll, that our show will be on for right. Netanyahu to get one person to leave one of the other parties. He can give Orly Levy Abukasis, who's Gesher, offer her the ministry of anything that she right. wants, okay. and that's it, and it's over. She she herself is a right-winger right. who went over to the left, right. the way he did with uh, the Ethiopian um, Knesset member who wasn't happy in blue and white, and he took him right just before the elections and right. gave him, brought 40 Ethiopian Jews over from uh, the Falashmoras over. So right. the big questions are, well, first of all, the whole election was about to be B or not to be B. Right. That, that really was what the election yeah. was about. And clearly the country has said, given voice to yes, BB. It always did because the, the people that voted for Lieberman, even the first time, are BB supporters. They're not Gantz supporters. They're not leftists. They're people on the right. So the second time around, they went for this anti-religious uh, agenda that you were discussing with Rabbi Eliach. But uh, ultimately, you see a solid right-wing. The country is solidly right-wing majority, um, and that, that continues to be. The question now is this. Netanyahu is supposed to show up in court in about yeah. 10 days. Yeah. His, uh, he, he's uh, been he, he is, uh, um, facing charges that include bribery. Now, it's going to be hard to prove it. A lot of these charges are very on the borderline of, of maybe yes and maybe no. But the people of Israel basically, I mean, can you imagine, <laughs> said, we don't really care because, because we have no confidence in the justice system of Israel. We believe that these were manufactured um, situations, cases, and... We we don't really believe it. Otherwise, how does how does a guy who has you know three conviction not convictions three um, counts against him who's about to show up in court how does he win so many so much support? 
The question is, will he try to pass a law once he gets his government in, in hmm. place that will it, – it's called the French law because in France they have this law that says that you can't um, um, in, indict a sitting president or prime minister um, or some other situation which will get him to – get them to push off his trial – the problem is that even within his own camp, he doesn't have full support for that. Right. So with a tight coalition of 61, that's going to be very difficult. But I think after surviving – also in the – so that was Mayor Weingarten, I think, had some really good insights there. And again, our headline here on the Nachum Siegel Network, I'm Jake Novak. As we are reporting live the results in the Israeli election, we have no voting results yet, but we have these exit poll results. And what they are showing very clearly – is at least for now, and again, this story can change. For those of you who remember, for example, the April elections in April 2019, the first hour or so, it looked very good for blue and white, and then by the end of the night, Likud had won more seats than any other party. So things can change. We, we, we we're making this very clear in the disclaimer. However, for those of you who are thinking about the past exit polls, you know that in the past they have tilted a little bit uh, leftward, and that may not continue tonight, but we, but right now we're seeing this headline. We are seeing Pre- uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu taking a victory lap of sorts, tweeting out a big heart emoji and, and, the, and the word thank you in Hebrew, saying toda in Hebrew. So clearly he's feeling very confident. We're also hearing reports that Avigdor Lieberman has already called Prime Minister Netanyahu to offer him some form of congratulation. So this, again, our early headline right now is that it does seem to be good news for the Likud party of all these last three elections, this would be their best result overall. And Mayor Weingarten giving us some inside I, I, thoughts about that. Also in the studio with us right now is Jim Nuzzo from the Colchester Group, who used to also be a former aide to President George H.W. Bush. So this is someone who has a lot of um, election experience. And there are some things that I think are very similar, Mayor Weingarten and Jim Nuzzo, to the Israel and the United States when it comes to what Mayor was just talking about. I think that this... Listen, we can say the headline is the voters today decided they're not that interested in this indictment anymore in Benjamin Netanyahu. But I think one of the things that we might be overlooking here is that this has been in the news for a long time. This indictment was long time in coming. It took forever to happen. Then they announced they were going to announce it. <laughs> they actually did announce it. Now, now it's going to apparently be in court. You know, all things you know, all things the way they are. It's going to actually go to court soon this month. But I think that there's a chance that maybe the voters have seen enough of this to the point where it has been desensitized in their minds. It's no longer the bombshell. I think that there were a lot of traditional Likud supporters who, maybe from it, maybe an older generation who just like thought to themselves, well, that word indictment made them so uncomfortable. I wonder, Jim Nuzzo, if there's a parallel that you can think of in American politics. I can think of a couple. Uh, I think what's going on with President Trump right now, the, the, the scandals that he gets hit with or the alleged scandals, or the things they try to smear him with, after a while seem to lose their bite after a while. I think the Russian collusion thing lost its bite very quickly. So I was wondering if you see, see some similarities there, Jim. I, I think that you have to understand that Israel sees itself in a very, very difficult world. And one of the things that we were talking about before we got on the air was the fact that maybe the rise of, of Bernie Sanders in mm. the United States could actually be playing to Netanyahu's advantage. The idea that there has to be someone who will stand up, even if the United States somehow pulls slightly away. And Netanyahu is somebody who they feel will be strong. So the rise of Bernie Sanders, the thought that maybe Bernie Sanders would become the Democratic nominee, and while I think it's incredibly unlikely that he'd ever become president, I think we'd, we'd see 1972 all over again, we'd see McGovern uh, crash out, maybe not 49 states going to the Republicans, but pretty close. 
But it's still enough if you're a Likud voter to say, I want someone who's very strong to be my prime minister. I don't know about Benny Gantz. I don't know if Benny Gantz has got what it takes if we get into a situation in which we're dealing with a Democratic Party, which is becoming more and more anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, uh, and we don't have now the White House and the executive branch also in the hands of people who are who are philo-Israeli. And I think that that actually probably also played into the election as well. Um, Mayor Weingarten also, one of the things that people don't, I think a lot of Americans, even supporters of Israel here in America, don't understand is they are given an impression that Israel is a more leftward country than it really is. Now, I think it's a great thing, for example, that Israel allows its Arab-Israeli citizens of Israel have a, a right to vote. It looks like they're going to do well in this election as well, with projected, in, at least in these exit polls right now, 14 seats, which is historically a pretty high number. But because so many of the Arab party leaders, even the people who go to the Knesset, don't actually support the existence of the state of Israel, uh, you know, that doesn't mean they're terrorists, but it, it means that they're just not really on the same page politically, on, a, on the same realistic grounding. You really, if you really want to get a, a taste of, put your finger to the wind of Israeli politics over ever since the collapse of the Oslo Accords, which you've been dealing with in Israel, which is really amazing for any country when you think about it compared to the United States, but especially for a Jewish state, it's really 60-40. It's about 60-40 center-right to 40, 60% center-right to 40% left-center. left center. And that's a big gap in an election. I mean, the, the, for example, the last time we had a 60-40 split in an American election, it, actually even Ronald Reagan versus Mondale didn't get that close. He got about 18%. You're talking about, uh, Jim was just saying, the 72 election, that was about a 60-40 split Nixon over McGovern. So this is really rare uh, when you think about it. But, Mayor, I was wondering if that is one of the uh, – I'm hearing today potential two things that tip the thing for Netanyahu. I'd love to get your comments on this. That was what just Jim, Jim was saying, that the rise of Bernie Sanders brought a lot of Israelis to the, re, to the point maybe where they were saying, oh, boy, uh, we're going to need someone who can be really, really strong and stand up to Bernie Sanders just like you know Netanyahu kind of stood up to, to Barack Obama over those years. And the second thing is – the news media in Israel, just like the United States, is much more to the left than the actual general population of Israel. And there are some people telling me that the news media's re- relentless attacks on Netanyahu finally backfire. So I wonder what you think of that, Mayor Weingarten. So um, I, I would say that, first of all, Benny Gantz ran a horrific campaign. <laughs> that That is, right. I think, at, at, at the core of a lot of what's going on now. His campaign was weak. It was mushy. It, it, it had no backbone. He, he just he part of the problem and, and the, Netanyahu knows how to grab on to every little thing and make a big issue out of it. He, he was caught in a little uh, um, little uh, uh, flips of the tongue where he couldn't say the words that he wanted to say or he or he, he would look at um, the interviewer whose name was uh, Yaffa, and he would call her Batya, and, uh, and so on and so forth, similar to uh, Biden, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But then Netanyahu grabs onto that and says, there's something wrong. He's not focused. He can't, he can't run the country, you know? Jim Nuzzo wants to weigh in on well, that. Uh, Mayor, actually, one other thing which also sort of struck me. Uh, in the past... Benny Gantz has always presented himself as Mr. Clean, Mr. Mm-hmm. Pure. Yes. And in the past couple of weeks, there have been some allegations of perhaps he's not as pure as he as right. he could be. And so, so now it's no longer Mr. Clean versus maybe Mr. Dirty, but Mr. Dirty versus maybe a little less dirty. And that that's a whole different kettle of fish. So there again, Netanyahu managed to grab that little tiny 
thread and make it into a, a, an entire a jacket or, or suit by taking something where it, there's a questionable behavior by a company that Gantz was the head of the board of directors. And if you know anything about corporations and boards of directors, he, he probably doesn't know anything. The police even said whatever investigation we're having has nothing to do with him. But it, it doesn't matter. Again, Netanyahu pounces on it. That's what makes Netanyahu probably the best politician and campaigner that Israel has had ever is his ability to just grab onto these things and run with it and unfortunately smear, in many cases, the other side. So he made him into a stuttering, babbling, and now not so clean politician for a guy who was the chief of staff of the army under Netanyahu. I want to give you an update here. Again, you are listening to live Israel election coverage results and analysis here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host for this coverage, uh, this historic coverage. You really have to, I, I don't know if there's ever been this kind of extended coverage in English here in the United States of Israel election results. And, and you just heard Mayor Weingarten talk a little bit about the, the Benny Gantz campaign. Our headline right now is that according to all three of the major exit polls that have been released in Israel since the polls closed at 3 p.m. U.S. time, Eastern time, I should say, that's 10 p.m. in Israel. There are no multiple time zones in Israel. That's one of the benefits of having a very small country, um, have been very favorable to Likud. These are the best results Likud has seen in these three elections we've had since last April. They are now projected, according to all three exit polls, to come in with 37 Seats, which would be the best results they've had in quite a while, 32 or 33, depending on this. That's the one major discrepancy. And if you add the other uh, far-right parties and the religious parties to the total of Likud, they would have 60 seats. They would need just one more. And as some of our commenters have already said, it would be very easy for them to get that one, that basically one, one kind of defector to come over. I want to set up Jim Nuzzo with a question based on what my, uh, Mayor Weingarten just said, because... I, I, you know, listen, you've worked for U.S. presidents, you've been in Washington, you've seen foreign dignitaries come to visit. There was a very interesting scenario that also happened a few, with this Trump peace plan that I noticed right away, and I asked some of my contacts in the Israeli diplomatic corps if they agreed with this scenario, and it turned out that they were 100% in agreement with me. Something really interesting happened during this election campaign. We've had for a while now Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu promising to extend what we call annexation. I'm not a big fan of the word annexation because that sounds like a little bit more brutal than it really is. Just the official extension of Israeli sovereignty over some key areas of the West Bank, which are already populated by Jewish settlements, already populated by Jews, and already built up by Jewish groups. In this election campaign season now, the third time around, Benny Gantz came out and basically said, I'm going to do that too. I will also extend Israeli sovereignty, and I will also do the annexation. Not exactly. He, he tried to make that kind of promise. Whether he was he, Basically, he jumped on that bandwagon. Now, that was a major green light for the Trump administration because the Trump administration did not want to release their pro-annexation, pro-extension of sovereignty policy if it were to be seen as a dividing issue in Israel between the major two parties. I think you're exactly right. I think that one of the things that the Trump administration has been very upset about having to go now to the third election is that they've been ready. This has been sitting in the back burner. They've they've been ready to release this for quite some time. They haven't wanted to be a partisan part of Israeli politics. Unfortunately, Israel hasn't been able to get its act together right. and have a, have a government. So now, if this is indeed the case, we will now have Netanyahu in the right wing 
established as a real government in Israel, there is now someone with whom the United States can have a negotiation. So what, what that triggered, because because Gantz was basically sort of getting, and I understand what Mayor Weingarten's point is, you know, there was, they definitely had some nuances there. But because he's sort of, from a headline point of view, from an American standpoint, remember this is the American news media and the American administration trying to interpret what Gantz was saying, because he also jumped on that annexation, extend sovereignty back, uh, uh, bandwagon, the Trump administration felt they had the green light to release this peace plan because it was no longer a dividing issue. Right. And that was something that the Gantz camp and Blue and White did not expect to happen. And that was so clear in the way that he wasn't. Remember remember Benny Gantz last month? Was he coming to Washington to be a part of this uh, uh, announcement or not? Was he going to come? Was he not going to come? Then he does come. And at Blair House, which is where a lot of visiting dignitaries uh, stay, he gives a speech that's very laudatory of Donald Trump, which must have driven the left-wing supporters of Benny Gantz in this country nuts well that, that's the, that's the whole thing that Benny Gantz had to play right yeah. I mean he, he's dealing with these folks who do not viscerally like Trump so yeah. <laughs> he has this issue in which if he goes and says anything that's positive to Trump there are a whole host of Ashkenazi Jews who would typically go blue and white if they didn't go to labor and, uh, and merits and if he goes and says something positive for Trump they're going to be pulling back they'll go to labor he then loses them if, on the other hand, he doesn't sort of endorse the peace plan, one, if the if he does become prime minister, he's now in a very difficult situation in which he's gone and sort of uh, has alienated the United States. So I think Gantz was very upset about the fact that it was going to be released before the election. The problem was that the Trump administration had been ready to go with this over a year ago. And at some point, they had to go and push this peace plan out. It was starting to get stale. The aspects of it were leaking out like a sieve. And they basically sort of said, that's it. We're, we're going to go and put this out. Benny Gantz's sort of going nuanced comments regarding the, the favorability of annexation. I agree with you. I don't like the word, but let's just use it yep. for, for shorthand. Benny Gantz's comments regarding annexation was exactly what 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 Greenblatt and the others wanted. They said, "Gosh, we've got a, a good light now. Let's go and jump this out." And it was Benny Gantz's worst nightmare. I would just add yeah, Mayor that that um, that didn't change the blocks. The two blocks, the right wing, the left wing, the voters that left blue and white because of that went left. Yeah, they, yeah. they're not joining Likud. That's true. Right. So the blocks, which is at the end of the day what really counts. We, I don't care how much this party has, that party has. It's the right-wing block, the left-wing block. So they remain within the block. So it didn't change the the actual well, it, uh, it, metrics. It, it doesn't, and it does, uh, Meyer, right? Because, yes, you're right that it, that he's still on the left. That Maybe they go to, they, they go they to go labor. They go to merits and labor, yeah. Yeah, but it, it makes... Lieberman much more unlikely to go and join with blue and white if the only way in which you're going to get to 61, if you're blue and white and you have the left wing block, it's going to be much harder for Lieberman to sort of say, oh, yeah, I can come on with you. If he wouldn't support uh, the, the Trump plan, you're saying? Yeah. yeah the que- I think I hear what you're saying. It's a good point. I, I think one of the um, interesting things that we should keep an eye on in the near future is whether BB will, in fact, Follow the Trump plan, because many in Israel believe that he has absolutely no willingness to do that. I think the I think, look, I think the Trump plan is probably dead on arrival and it doesn't have to do anything. I think. Correct. Bibi, because I think the Bibi, other side doesn't accept. Exactly. It. So, I mean, Bibi's that, getting right. a free, get a free pass. No, but the question is whether Bibi will. Uh, it's, it's not annexation, really. It's applying Israeli law 
to the Jordan River Valley. That's right. that's what Bibi was was promoting before the previous election and the other election. Oh, just vote for me, and we're going to do this. That's the way he phrased it. Yeah, he said that we're going to do this. In fact, he said the Sunday after the big ceremony at the White House, we're going to have a government meeting and we're going to apply the law, Israeli law, to the Jordan River Valley, which, of course, didn't happen because then suddenly, out of the blue, they discovered that President Trump didn't want that to happen, yeah, as but, if they didn't know that. But the, the, the bottom line is the one thing you could always count on if you're an Israeli politician, an Israeli leader, is that the Palestinians will go and yes. blow it up. <laughs> yes. But, again, let's, but um, again, the question is, does... does figuratively. Yeah. yeah exactly. very good. Unfortunately. The question is, does Netanyahu, who has now an opportunity to do this, he has an opportunity to take the Jordan River Valley and apply Israeli rule to that Israeli law to that area, which the right wing really wants. The question is, are they calling his bluff or is it true? Again, you're listening to live coverage of the Israeli election results here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host. You've just been listening to Mayor Weingarten and also Jim Nuzzo discussing some of the intricacies of the Trump peace plan, which we're all in agreement had played a role in the viability of the Gantz candidacy one way or the other, and also certainly played, given some options to the Netanyahu government. One thing we haven't mentioned about this, what I, so I want to get you just two of the headlines right now again. The, the early exit polls, which in the past have been unreliable, but they seem at least to be all going in the same direction right now, showing very good news for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu. He is sort of taking a victory lap right now. Uh, tweeting out a thank you notice on his uh, Twitter page, apparently getting a, a, a kind of congratulatory phone call from Avigdor Lieberman. So it seems like good news right now for Lee Kubarty. That is the, the headline as of this hour. It may change. I want to make that clear. A couple of other headlines we haven't been able to get to right now. I have long uh, charted this out and mapped this out. Uh, the Dow Jones and the U.S. stock market likes Bibi Netanyahu. I don't really think there's much of a debate about that. Whether that is the reason why we are rallying very strongly to the close just since the exit polls, I, I wouldn't throw that completely out. We are now up on the Dow 995 points, 94 points on the S&P 500. We were, after a report of some coronavirus deaths at a nursing home in Washington State, we had fallen all the way to the 400 level up on the Dow, which certainly would be a nice gain anyway. But we've more than doubled those gains in just that short amount of time. And I'm not going to, to, to throw this out. Uh, the, the, the bulls in both the stock market and in the oil market like Bibi Netanyahu, when Bibi Netanyahu first rewon uh, the pre- premiership in 2009, we had our first. That was the end of the sell-off in the crude oil markets in 2009. If you remember, we got all the way down to like $29 a barrel. That was the turnaround at that moment. Just so you know that there is, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu and his economic, um, his economic experience and his economic record, a very big part of his career. Those of you who know his history, his term as finance minister, he was miserable. He did not want that job, and yet. The things he did as finance minister, which had a lot to do with the further moving of Israel away from socialism to a more capitalist structure, may actually be one of his greatest legacies as a politician, even though he did not like that job. And my old boss, Larry Kudlow, was one of his big advisors during that time, and he was very impressed with that. So I I, I feel like I'm on very strong ground when I say the U.S. equity markets like Bibi Netanyahu, and this rally I don't think is a complete coincidence. But that's another sort of secondary headline I want everyone to be aware of right now. Now we are over 1,000 points. Now, listen, we lost about 3,500 to 4,000 points on the Dow last week, so we're only a little bit more than – we're about a third of the way back. But that's a pretty big deal and I don't think that the Netanyahu election is hurt, or these good news, I should say, this good news from the exit polls is hurting that rally. Um, Jim Nuzzo, what can you say about, from an, from an American economic standpoint, how is Benjamin Netanyahu considered right now? And do you think that helped him 
as far as support here in this country as opposed to a, a guy like Benny Gantz who doesn't really have a lot of business experience? Look, what's interesting to me is that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is taking a look at the coronavirus and has talked about the fact that Israel is the in, you know is 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 the economy is an economy of of ideas it is completely transformed think about israel 20 years ago it was an it was an agrarian society and now what's the big thing it's a technology society yeah. it's a hard science biotech, technology, yeah. a biotech society and we're hearing continually again that we're a couple of weeks away that israeli scientists are a couple of weeks away from having a, a vaccine for the coronavirus which i basically said gee i wonder if the bds people are truly going to be <laughs> bds folks right, yeah. when it comes to the, to the virus we all agree on that right? yes right. yeah <laughs> you guys stand on the side yeah, yeah, they can have it you, can, you can't have it yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they could test it on them well, they, well but i mean i i think that one of the reasons why we're now seeing the Dow going so high is, again, the technology society, which has become very important in Israel. If we take a look at, at startup, it is, they call it startup nation. Matter of fact, that was BB's line yesterday. Startup nation will go and take care of the coronavirus. I mean, think about that. Startup nation. That's what Israel is. And I think that the, the American stock exchange, I think American entrepreneurs look at Israel as like Silicon Valley, as one of those places which becomes sort of the hub for technology growing up. And this is going to be very good news. I don't think they knew where Benny Gantz was. I mean, Benny Gantz was at the IDF. They understand he, that he's going to be able to protect Israel from a national security standpoint. But he's was much more fuzzy in terms of where he was going to bring the economy. Was he going to go and promote the startup nation? I mean, there's no doubt about it that if you take a look at Netanyahu, he sees Herzliya, he sees this whole idea of startup nation as where Israel has to go, and all the policies that's going to come out of his government is going to be to promote this whole notion of startups. He, he in fact, always is at the, spe- you know, at the front of this issue, Every major high-tech company in the world has a center in Israel. And every CEO of every major high-tech company says, if you're a major high-tech company and you don't have a center in Israel, then you're not a major high-tech company. And that really is to Benjamin Netanyahu's credit. He also has opened the world, and Israel sees this, a new relationship with India, which is unbelievable. He has a very close relationship with Modi. Now he was in Africa. He let's 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 even go closer to home. You take a look at the Gulf nations, and the Gulf yes, nations are yes, now taking a look and saying, "Hey, startup nation, what have you been able to do? What can we get from you?" If anything, his one of the reasons he's been able to peel the Gulf nations away from the Palestinians is because they now see the opportunity to sort of recreate in their nations what Netanyahu and the Israelis have been able to create. And and we have a mutual enemy. And we have a mutual enemy. Iran. And believe it or not, the Arab nations, led by Saudi Arabia and Egypt, which we always think as the strong, you know, Arab countries, see Israel as the superpower in the region that is a bulwark against Iran. And if you think back, the person who kept sounding the alarm about Iran was Bibi Netanyahu from years and years back and at, at some point, he was being accused of overhyping it, and he came to America, if you remember, against Obama's to speak against the uh, yeah. to speak to the Congress, and he got heck for that. 
This is a Churchill-like uh, moment, you know, where Churchill was that lone voice in the British government for so long, warning against the Nazis and warning against Hitler. Uh, I think that Netanyahu plays that role. You know, Mayor Weingarten and Jim Nuzzo. This also brings us back to the Trump peace plan and the success of it. What I've been trying to say in many of my columns and, and, and in my interviews is that the Palestinians, as you, as you were saying, the Palestinians had, had rejected it. Uh, we know that they had rejected it in the past. The success of this peace uh, plan is that we've seen so many Gulf states either support it or say, hey, let's give it a chance. And that's more important than, listen, we know the Palestinians are going to be rejectionist. We know they're not going to accept these peace plans. But for Saudi Arabia to basically say, let's give this a chance. For Qatar, which we know is sometimes in bed with Iran, to also say give this a chance. Egypt, it's a very big deal. Well, I mean, if you take a look, two, two or three days ago, there was that photograph in Saudi Arabia radio in uh, uh, Riyadh in which you had Jewish rabbis sitting down with the crown prince Malcolm Holine and the president's conference were an official delegation that were welcomed in Saudi Arabia just a few weeks ago I mean this is this is unheard of shattering I mean it's 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 almost impossible the other thing that we have to realize is when we talk about the Palestinians there's a difference between the leadership and the people on the ground what's fascinating to me when you take a look at what's happening with Hamas and what's out out of Gaza is you're not seeing it happen in the West Bank, by and large, right? Even East East Jerusalem, there are a couple of crazies, but it's basically fairly quiet. That's be- that, that really is because uh, Abbas is keeping his security forces together in sync with the IDF and keeping his part of the deal of, of tamping down terrorism. Um, and that's why that's happening. And if he would be out of there, it would just flare up in a minute, which... Ultimately, I think most Israelis believe there is no peace plan. No. It's not happening in this generation. And they've given up, which is why you have that 60-40 split that, you, that, that Jake was talking about, because they've learned the lesson. You know, we tried this. It didn't work. It's not going to work. So I mean, either the, other than APAC and, and its supporters, the only people who are dealing with the two-state two solutions are 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 folks in the US media but if you go in on the ground in Israel and US Jews and US and US Jews exactly US Jews right. but if you go on the ground in Israel no. even the people who are on the on the moderate left right. have basically said look Absolutely. there's no one that we can negotiate with there's no way to have a have a have a two state solution if the other side isn't willing to be at the table and you've seen the a... results labor gesher merits this is the far left right plus the Labor Party, which was left but not as much to the center, ends up with seven seats in the Knesset. It's like nothing. This was this was the party. Yeah, this right. was the dominant party. One other piece of breaking news just to tell you, I'm seeing pictures now of blue and white campaign headquarters. And to call it a, uh, a, a graveyard might even be an understatement. It is very, very quiet there. Reporters there are saying they have never seen as quiet and empty an election headquarters at this stage of the game. So clearly they're taking these exit polls on face value. Again, our headline here on the Nachum Siegel Network, I'm Jake Novak as we're covering this live election coverage here, Israel election, uh, the third round here, but the first one of 2020, hopefully the only for 2020 for the sake of, uh, of the Israeli people. And what we are seeing now is a ex- series of exit polls that are showing fantastic results from the Likud side, 37 projected seats in all three of the major uh, exit polls, 32 or 33 for blue and white. That would be a big downgrade for them, a big upgrade for Likud. 
And again, Benjamin Netanyahu seems to be considering this a victory. He has tweeted out a thank you notice to the Israeli people, Avigdor Lieberman making a phone call of congratulation, and now reports that Blue and White headquarters are, well, the air is out of that balloon. I mean, there is just no uh, nobody there, apparently, a very downtrodden group, and they will not expect to hear from Benny Gantz until 1 a.m. tomorrow, Israel time, which would be... I guess, 6 p.m. our time here. So he may not even speak until then, and it might be later. So that is what's going on right now. It does appear at this stage of the game where, again, things can change when we start getting some of the official results, that this has been a very good day and night for the Likud party. Third time's the charm for them, although they did come in with the most votes, the most seats of any party in the first go-around back in April of 2019. They had a downgrade in twenty uh, in September of 2019, but this is their best result so far. If, again, if, huge if, underline it many times, these exit polls hold up. Uh, the other bit of breaking news that I don't think is completely unrelated to all of this is that we now have the Dow Jones with four minutes to the close up 1,200 points, S&P 500 up 125 points, and the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ, up more than th- uh, 344 points. These would all represent 4% gains for all those indices today, I think most of this has to do with coronavirus somewhat relief, coronavirus uh, bargain hunting. However, I also think that based on his history and 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 and, uh, and Mayor and and Jim Nuzzo, which just Mayor Weingarten and Jim Nuzzo, which is talking about this, I do believe the markets have a very soft spot in their heart for Benjamin Netanyahu, and I have noticed that when he has political gains. Both the Dow and the oil markets tend to do a little bit better. Jim Nuzzo. Not only just Netanyahu having won, but just the markets do not like uncertainty. Mm-hmm. They don't like when the, when things are basically pushed off to the to the future. The idea that there is now a solid government in place or will be a solid government in place in Israel is a risk on issue for the markets the markets now feel much more comfortable to come in because one of those risks we have a very risky world at this point if we can put the middle east partially to bed as a risk issue that's going to be something which will be favorable and bullish for the markets yeah and i think another issue that we have had a chance to talk about and maybe we will with some of our middle east experts in the coming hours we've also seen a flare-up in is in syria in the last several days first off early on in election day we had some attempted sniper attack from Syria going into into Israel, that was thwarted. There were no Israeli casualties there, I'm happy to report. But that was an interesting development. But the bigger story has been that the overt fighting between Turkey and the Assad regime and Syria has accelerated. Turkey down two Syrian jets over the weekend. And Russia's position, which has been problematic for Israel on many levels, because when Israel tries to retaliate against Syrian weapons and missile sites in, in Syria, it's... Very difficult for Israel to make sure they don't accidentally hit the Russians. And there have been some some calamities and some problems that the Russians and the Syrians have encountered because they're also trying to avoid any kind of engagement with Israel. You know, there's a Yiddish saying, you can't dance at all weddings. That's been Russia's foreign policy since the time of the czars and certainly during the time of the Soviet Union. And that is another reason why maybe some Israelis saw this as an opportunity or as a clarifying moment for them to support Likud or another right-wing party because they don't want to play too many games with with all of that. And, and one of the things, the bombings in Syria, Israel's bombing in Syria has nothing to do with Syria. Israel's bombing Iranian camps and Iranian yeah. stockpiles because Iran is trying to get a foothold in Syria to be close to Israel, and Israel is not allowing that. And they see it over and over again that it's not going to happen. Once again, you've been listening to live coverage of the Israeli election results here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host. 
We have a lot more guests to get to and a lot more to tell you about. But again, our first hour is just wrapping up, and the headline has been very clear. The exit poll showing very good news for the Likud party and the right-wing bloc. They would be, according to these exit polls, just one seat away from establishing that 61-seat majority. And we are all in agreement that with only one seat away and with such a strong showing for Likud, if these exit polls are correct, there would likely be a Likud-led government once again by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We can take a little bit of a break for a moment, and we'll be right back with hour number two. The Nachum Siegel Network here. I'm Jake Novak, your host for this hour number two of our live Israel election coverage. That was Kol Achai with their song Migdol. Uh, it's a little bit Israeli music. If it sounds like Dixieland music, there's two reasons why we wanted to play it. First off, it was a record I believe produced by one of our guests here, Mayor Weingarten. That's one reason why I wanted to play it. Second reason why I wanted to play it is my earliest memory of elections in my life was my mother taking me to the polls in the 1976 presidential election Jimmy Carter versus Gerald Ford. And for some reason, there was a Dixieland band playing at my polling station in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm not sure even to this day if they were electioneering for one of the candidates or if it was just one of those things where they wanted people to give donations. Uh, Whatever it was, it was it was the thing that really impressed me until my mother went into the voting booth. And I remember being very scared as a almost six year old boy. My mother's going into this booth, and she does not look happy. I didn't think she liked her, her sure, choices that day. sure it wasn't because you anticipated the election outcome? Yeah, no. Um, I, I do know that they voted for Ford. Both my parents voted for Ford. And I also know that Maryland went for Ford. I mean, when was the last, that was the last time Maryland went to, by the way. I, well, they went for Reagan both times. But that was the last time in a contested, let's just say, a, a real election where it wasn't an obvious thing that Maryland went to a, a Republican. Uh, again, we have some headlines for you here in the 4 o'clock New York Time hour that I want to get out really, really quickly, just from a bullet point standpoint. For those of you who are looking for election results, the leading exit polls in Israel are all showing very good news for Likud and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. These are the best results right now. It it would show if these results are correct, Likud would come in with 37 seats as opposed to 33 or even as low as 32 for the Blue and White Party. That would lead with the other results that we're looking at from some other parties. That would lead to a very clear path towards a majority government for Likud. They would only need one more party to a member of a party to join them, and Avigdor Lieberman might actually be willing to finally make a deal based on this, because we've also heard that he has given a congratulatory phone call to Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's walking it back just. Oh, now he's walking. He's, he's walking it back. <laughs> what just a surprise! A of course, he that's, is. Yes, that's well, that. It would not be Avigdor Lieberman if it weren't for right. a walk back. Right. Well, I mean, it's also. I mean, if he goes into the government with uh, Shahs and with United Torah. He's going to have an awful lot of his right. constituents. He's breaking every, 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 every rule, every, every one of his promises promise that, he that he's ever made to his folks who Not basically... Not that that stopped him before, but yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, well, it's going to be very interesting because then where did these people have to go? Now, that was Jim Nuzzo and along with Mayor Weingarten, who are in, in the city with me, along with Mayor Furtick. And we are about to be joined by another very interesting guest, someone who really is an expert on the Israeli situation. And I'd love to get her her comments on some of these election results. We're joined now by Sarah Stern. She is the founder and president of Emmet, which is really that it's an endowment for basically telling the truth about Israel. I mean, Emmet like their name. Uh, and it is a really, it's an important organization. And Sarah Stern, those are the headlines right now. It seems, again, this could change. I, I want to make that clear. But right now, it really seems like a victorious night for Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud and the right-wing bloc. Your, your, your immediate reactions to that news? 
My immediate reaction is relief. <laughs> I'm actually um, extremely, extremely happy. I think that Prime Minister Netanyahu has been doing an excellent job. Um, he is um, a very, very delft diplomat, um, especially um, dealing with the situation on his northern border in Lebanon and with Russia and Syria. Um, and he has taken the economy of Israel, you know, into this high-tech um, free market capitalist economy from basically a kibbutz socialist economy. Um, and he has really, uh, considering the assaults that have been um, made on Israel from all corners, from the United Nations, um, throughout um, the international community, on campuses, he has led Israel with a tremendous amount of pride and dignity. And he's kept, he, he's, He's kept the high ground, um, so it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal um, uh, uh, history, you know, since he first became elected in 1996 and then returned to power shortly thereafter that. It's been a wonderful boom time for Israel. Uh, you're calling us, I, I, I understand, from Washington, D.C. Have you been to the APAC conference at all this weekend, and what can you tell us about yes. that if you have? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I'm currently at APAC. I've been there actually since Friday when they have a Shabbat, a Sabbath. Um, um, weekend, and I've been here throughout. Um, what is so amazing is the diversity of the people that come here. They are left and right. They are, you know, um, Republican, conservative to liberal, Democrat, independent. There are Christians, there are Jews, um, there are um, people of color, there are LGBTQ people. Um, it is a huge umbrella organization that is just united along one theme, and that's the safety and security of the state of Israel. And that is why I think um, what um, Senator Bernie Sa- Sanders has tweeted and said in the debate that APEC is a bigoted organization um, and that Bibi Netanyahu is a racist is preposterous. And I've been going to APAC for about 30 years, and during those 30 years, um, Senator Sanders has been in office. He has never once stepped foot in the door. So if he if he were here and he saw the diversity of people here, he would not be waging such absurd ad hominem attacks on the organization or on the prime minister, where 63% of the population in Israel are basically not white. They're either, mm-hmm. you know, Sephardic from the Arab world or um, black Ethiopian or Israeli Arab. And, you know, for, for him to say these sorts of outrageous state statements are just totally uncalled for. Uh, you're listening totally. to Sarah Stern here on the Nachum Siegel Network in our live uh, Israel election coverage. Again, our headline being that these early exit poll results all showing what would be a very strong result for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu, the best of these three elections that they've had over the last 11 months. And Sarah Stern is the president and founder of the Emet, which is the Endowment for Middle East Truth. I, I, you, know, you went right to Bernie Sanders there, and you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. We are hearing from some people who have been just looking at these election results and what's been going on in the last few days, and they believe, forget about not only APAC responding to, to Bernie Sanders and, and mentioning these facts that you just mentioned, but there is a belief that Bernie Sanders' surge, and he may continue that surge tomorrow in Super Tuesday, may have contributed to some Israeli voters 
uh, deciding to vote with Likud because they believe that Benjamin Netanyahu would be a better prime minister to deal with a potential President Sanders. Uh, what is your that's, feeling on that? I think that's exactly right. I think there's a huge fear. Um, I, I've seen this. I've been working in this arena for many, many years. Amit is um, only 15 years old, but I've been doing pro-Israel ad- advocacy and activism, you know, for, for most of my adult life. And there used to be this huge bipartisan support for Israel. There is still some bipartisan support for Israel, but it is eroding, unfortunately, in the Democratic Party. And it's very painful for me. Um, I, I, I would like this to be a bipartisan issue. Um, it, you know, I, I work on some legislative initiatives, and it's impossible to get certain things through the House now that, that's governed by Nancy Pelosi. And I feel that um, we, need, we need a prime minister who can be articulate and, and smooth and can defeat some of these outrageous, unfounded allegations, these libels against the Jewish state, the state of Israel. So I think maybe when um, people are feeling very comfortable, then they take more of a chance Mm. and they feel that they can vote for, you know, what's commonly referred to as a more liberal candidate. But, you know, Israel is not just being paranoid that they're feeling attacked. They are being attacked. I just spent this afternoon with two beautiful young people um, from the University of Illinois College campus, and they tried to defeat a BDS resolution in their student government, and they were called Nazis. They had an Israeli flag um, painted with the words genocide on top of it. They had a blood-soaked Israeli flag. They had the, a mezuzah that was on someone's door taken off of his door, and he, he told me in the middle of the night, uh, two in the morning, they were knocking on the door, and they said he was a effing Zionist pig. I mean, our kids are being attacked. Anti-Semitism is here and alive and well in America today, and I think people in Israel know that. This is not a phenomenon that's just, you know, in certain pockets of the Muslim and Arab world. In fact, I happened to be fortunate. I was blessed to be invited into the East Room of the White House when um, the um, President Trump's vision for peace and prosperity um, was being introduced. And sitting directly in the row in front of me were three ambassadors from three Arab lands, um, United Arab Emirates, Oman, and Bahrain. And, you know, we're seeing a coming together from the Arab, the Gulf Arab states with Israel, while here in the West, there's this huge surge of anti-Semitism, you know, coming from the right, but particularly coming from the left. And, um, I'm, you know, I was, I just heard these harrowing discussions from kids that are on the front lines, and I, they need backup, they need support. You're it's listening really, to Sarah really... Stern here on the Nachum Siegel Network, our live coverage of the Israeli uh, national election. Uh, again, our headline, the exit polls, early exit polls showing very strong results for Benjamin Netanyahu. Blue and White Party headquarters are hearing reports that that is a dead scene right now. Not a lot of people there. A little, who, those who are there kind of downtrodden. Pre, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has tweeted a thank you note. I want to ask you one more thing, Sarah Stern, because you, you touched on it a little bit. Um, there is a there, there's a thought process that and you'll hear this from a lot of people, especially on the American left. And, I, and maybe not just the American left, maybe some people who aren't so, 
realistic about the situation in Israel. They'll say something along the lines of, well, Israel will be more of a bipartisan issue. There'll be more bipartisan support for Israel when, if we can just get rid of Netanyahu. Netanyahu is this polarizing figure. I've never really bought that. I've always found that the people who are against Israel or are lukewarm in their support for Israel are that way when there's a left-wing prime minister and when there's a right-wing prime minister. But I wonder if you would either agree with that. Do you really think that Benjamin Netanyahu is the reason for a, a, a wavering of bipartisan support for Israel in this country? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, you know, I know some of the people in Benny Gantz's party, um, and and I know some of the um, of former General Moshe Yalon. He is as big a security hawk as Bibi Netanyahu, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that when it comes to the fundamental issues of security, he would be just as hawkish, just as right-wing as Bibi Netanyahu. So there might be a little honeymoon period on saying, oh, we support Israel for the first day, until they realize that Israel has to do what any nation-state has to do under the UN Charter, and that is their first responsibility to protect their civilian population. So as long as they do that, they will hate Israel because they will not let, you know, terrorists come in. They will not um, disem- um, or, or, or destroy the security fence that they had to erect because of all the, the missiles and bombs that were coming in. So um, when Israel does what any other nation does, you know, they, they are subjected to this egregious double standard which is one of the definitions of anti-Semitism. And um, and Israel has decided, and I think that the voters of Israel went to the polls, they exercised their dem- democratic right, they've decided that they need somebody who could keep Israel strong and secure and can also articulate Israel's message very, very well. And um, But if, if it would have been blue and white, I think there's like a sliver of a hair's difference between blue and white and we could when it comes to the fundamental issues of security and as soon as Benny Gantz would have exercised, you know, the security measures that he needs to keep his country safe, they would um, level the same kind of accusations against Benny Gantz. Sarah Stern is the founder and president of Emmet, the Endowment for Middle East Truth. I want to thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us, not only giving us your impressions of some of these early results, but also telling us a little bit about the tenor and what's going on at APAC. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. But right now, I want to get to some a little bit of an update on some of these exit polls from Mayor Weingarten. Mayor, not you've yet. got some, some new up. stuff. Not, not yet. They're not, not yet. up yet. Okay. They're coming up soon. <laughs> coming up soon. There is Jim Nuzzo. There is, yeah, there is one little piece of information. Yeah. We were talking uh, about the fact that we are at the highest level since the 1999 election in terms of participation, 80% of those people who were, there were 5,000 and change people who were, who were held in a band. 5,600. Yeah. Because of the coronavirus, over 4,200 of them voted. Yeah. So you have 80% of those who had coronavirus uh, protections placed on them. They voted. Right. Well, there was a great way to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, because it was very cumbersome way to vote, it was in hazmat uh, suits and a ha- right. special tent and everything. They set up specific sites for them. I think there were 16 sites throughout the country. They waited online for like two hours. Right. And they still... 80% of them voted. They still waited and voted. And that's amazing. And I think it's amazing. You talk about Israel and start of it. The way Israel's been treating the whole coronavirus and in an election 
to quickly turn around and set up place for people that are in quarantine. It's not people that are sick with corona. It's right. people that are in quarantine because they might have been in, t- yeah, in sick, contact. Yes, yeah, so the sick people were not allowed to go right, out of the hospital right, and vote. Correct. We should make that clear. Um, it is, is, is awesome. It's, yeah. it's just really fab- fabulous. One of the things we also should realize is that one of the votes that always is late coming in is the is the soldier vote? Correct. Yeah. So that vote and know, it skews right, and it skews very much right. So we also have to realize as we're looking at these numbers, these numbers do not deal with the IDF vote, and the IDF vote will will skew right, which probably maybe even gives gives the sixty one votes for Netanyahu in the Knesset without having to go and go and buy off one additional person. <laughs> right. Before we bring on our next guest here on our live coverage here of the Israeli election results here on the Nachum Siegel Network, again, I'm Jake Novak. You've just been listening to Jim Nuzzo, former aide to President George H.W. Bush and from the Colchester Group currently. You've also been hearing from Mayor Weingarten, uh, a familiar voice here on the Nachum Siegel Network, the host of the Israel Show and an expert on all these matters as well. And I'm about to bring in another guest, but I just want to, again, once again, the major headlines and make sure I get all of them. One is the early exit poll showing very good news for Likud. 37 projected seats, which would be a big gain for them in the last from the last two elections, would seem to put them on a clear path towards forming a coalition government. Finally, that would be a major a move. Nothing's for sure. Not only not even the exit polls and even the results of the, and even the coalition effect on them. But that's an important headline. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in a celebratory mood, certainly so far. He has he tweeted out a thank you. To the people of Israel. It's also his 29th anniversary tonight. Oh, and he's also, uh, this, that would be a romantic evening for him. I'm not sure if that's a celebration yeah. or not. <laughs> there's, a, there's a picture yeah. of him here on Twitter uh, right. kissing his wife. Right. So. And that was, Mayor Fertig, our, our producer tonight and our, our co-anchor, giving us that information. Um, also, uh, we have reports from Blue and White headquarters, campaign headquarters, the real sort of air out of the balloon scene there. Very, very quiet. Again, this can change. I want to make that very clear, but not a very happy mood at the Blue and White headquarters. And and I think what is a not unrelated headline, the Dow Jones rally to its best percentage gain in 11 years, rallying 5.1%, closing up 1,293 points today. Uh, I think some of that had to do with some kind of certainty coming out of an Israel election, at least they're believing it's certainty, and a, also a pro-Netanyahu stock market. I don't think that that is even 20% of the reason for the rally, but it certainly helped that rally today that was already establishing and was actually losing steam before we got this news from Israel in that last hour of trading. I think it helped. I don't think it is a major help. Don't don't call the <laughs> don't call Jim Cramer and all the fan, uh, and, and to, to beat me up. I'm not saying that's why we rallied today, but I do think it helped a little bit. I think it was part of this rally in a small in a small in a small way, and it's important to mention that certainly that kind of news out of Israel is not going to take the air out of a rally. I want to talk right now, though. I want to bring in another guest and another important important viewpoint because we've been talking so much about the relationship between the United States and Israel here on this election show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And one of the most important things that so many Americans do not understand, especially if they live in New York, Washington, or Los Angeles, is that the core, from a numbers point of view, from a numbers point of view for voters, the core support for the state of Israel in elections comes from the American evangelical Christian community. This is just a numbers point of view here, and it is important. And one of the leaders of that group, and someone who really understands Israel very, very well because he's constantly there and certainly understands his own community, his own evangelical community, is the Reverend Tony Crisp. And Reverend Tony joins us right now, and I, I want to get first your reaction to what appears to be a very good night for Likud. It could change, but what are your reactions to these headlines, Reverend? Well, I'm thrilled about it because I believe that uh, Netanyahu is good for Israel and good for America. Um, when you take a look at 
support. Now, we, you know, we, we just asked Sarah Stern from the Emmett Foundation about the, the, the Emmett, the Endowment for, for Truth. And she was talking about something that I think is very true, this, this fact that no matter who the Prime Minister of Israel is, those who are enemies of the state of Israel or lukewarm in Israel and the United States are going to remain. They, they're using kind of Netanyahu as a red herring, as a straw man, as a punching bag, when the truth is it's really about either being fa- supporting Israel or not supporting Israel. Do you hear anything in the, in the evangelical community, even though you believe that Netanyahu is good for Israel and good for, for, for America, do you think that there would be any change in the evangelical community's support for Israel if there were another prime minister? Absolutely not, because we're not committed to a particular party. We're committed to the Jewish people and to the state of Israel. Do you see a change in the attitude? There's been a pro-Israel fervency I've seen, and this is actually not only my work, but more importantly the work of my father, Rabbi David Novak, a, a real pro-Israel fervency in the Christian community ever since the end of World War II, a, a shift, especially in, the, in, in Protestant uh, communities, but also in the Catholic movement. There's, there, there's definitely more of a pro-Israel shift ever since the end of World War II. Obviously, Israel was not a state of Israel until 1948, but really in those years. However, do you think well, that there's, a, there's been a change in that, in, in, in how they're approaching a pro-Israel uh, atmosphere? Well, I think what has happened is evangelicals have started reading the Bible again. (laughs) And uh, there was a lot of liberalism that uh, came to fore from Germany, actually, and from German theologians. But when um, uh, people read the Bible and no one messes with them, they're going to come out loving Israel. And that's what's happened with evangelicals. There's been a conservative resurgence in the largest Protestant denomination in America, Southern Baptist, uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, they have led the way for evangelicals back to a pro-Israel stance, because when you allegorize one-third of the Tanakh and the Berit Hadashah, then all of a sudden uh, there is no need for Israel, there's no place for Israel, because God's finished with them. And uh, that's not um, anything but anti-Semitism. And since people have started reading the Bible, Jake, they have gotten back to loving uh, the people of the Bible, which is the nation and people of Israel. You know, uh, Reverend Chris, you lead tours in Israel, uh, Holy Land tours, and uh, I think it's, I think the full name is TLC Holy Land. So you'll, you'll correct me if I got that wrong. That's no, that's correct. Um, and listen, if I were a comedy writer, one of the first in Israel, one of the first sketches I would write would be a split screen of Jewish groups visiting the land of Israel and Christian groups visiting the land of Israel. Because, yes. honestly, one of those things that I think is very, very important is I, I, I do believe that Christian groups that go to the land of Israel and tour there put some Jewish groups to shame in a way, in the way that we come at it. There is such enthusiasm. I mean, I, I have uh, these vivid memories of seeing Christian groups spontaneously breaking into dance when they see certain relics and artifacts. And and, sure. and and the Jewish and, and here we, here I am in my group and we're complaining about our breakfast at the hotel, um, but all kidding aside, I think what everyone who visits comes. What? what hotel were you at? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, right. The, the, actually, breakfast they have down. Maybe it was lunch they were complaining about. So um, listen, it, it, I, I I I'm joking and I'm over exaggerating. Obviously, oh, groups that go are are, are and, and 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 take that time out and 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 show that commitment are, are obviously very happy to be there, but. Is it just so? You mentioned the Bible aspect, of it, but I've also noticed a, a, a current events aspect 
to evangelical support to Israel. Obviously, it's based just like Jewish support for Israel, even among secular Jews, because even they will say, obviously, there's an historic bond. This is our homeland. But is there a current political uh, wave in the United States that has also led evangelicals to be more supportive of Israel? Of course there is. And when I take tours, the the thing about my uh, approach and company that's unique is when people come, not only do we visit uh, what would be traditional Christian holy sites. But I take half of my tours, or 60% uh, of all of my itinerary, is Jewish. Why? Because that's the uh, roots of our uh, faith. But not only that, I want them to not just come to Israel and think about the ancient people, but connect the modern Israel with the ancient people. And that's the disconnect within the evangelical community. They love ancient Israel. They don't love modern Israel. And many of the mainline denominations, United Methodist, Presbyterian USA, so forth, they have that disconnect because they say they love ancient Israel but not modern Israel. And so when we go, uh, I do the geopolitical, APAC 101, if you will, and, and teach them the strategic, not just the spiritual aspects, but the strategic nature of our alliance and our love and the need for Israel uh, as an island within a sea of everything uh, that is contrary to what we believe as a Judeo-Christian uh, adherence. You're listening to uh, Reverend Tony Cripps here on the Nachum Siegel Network as we are reporting the live Israel election results. One of our in-studio guests, uh, Jim Nuzzo, wants to ask you a question. Jim. Reverend, I have one question for you. I mean, it's very clear if you take a look at, at uh, the way in which evangelical Christians have been so supportive of the state of Israel, but if you take a look at young evangelicals, there's a real concern on the part of some that they are not as supportive of modern Israel the way in which the folks of our generation, your or my generation, may have been. Are you seeing that within your groups? What is what is the evangelical community doing to deal with young evangelicals to make certain that they continue to have that strong support for Israel the present? Well, I think it's two-pronged. You have to go back to there is the spiritual component, which is the bedrock of evangelical support, but there's also the strategic nature. You've got to remember that the younger generation, uh, most of them are in our university systems, which are have become really indoctrination centers for the left and the BDS movement and so forth. And so you've got to come at it from an educational standpoint and get out there on the college campuses and into the churches that are in those college communities and make a difference, which we are. We're turning the tide. Uh, You're going to see a difference. But many of these young uh, millennial um, pastors have been schooled uh, by these IGMOs, and because of that, we have to deal with the same thing that we dealt with uh, decades ago because it is just, uh, you see, the enemy has no uh, new uh, products. They just repackage it and refresh it, and it it comes back. And so what we're seeing is that in an educational standpoint and from a biblical standpoint, um, one of the reasons why we are losing that uh, uh, element of our uh, society is because now we've gotten so fancy that we think we don't need the Bible anymore and evangelicalism, and so we're getting up giving pious platitudes that never changes anyone's life and uh, we're not uh, teaching the Bible. We're teaching motivational messages on Sunday morning that make people feel good. 
and that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, set up the next generation for success. Well, Reverend Chris, you've you've described what's going on in a lot of Jewish congregations as well. Uh, you know, they call us the people of the book, and I can't tell you how many times I hear rabbis giving sermons, or more importantly, commenting about the political situation and saying, "Well, this is Jewish teaching," and they never do a citation. Exactly. They don't cite. You know, you got to give me exactly. chapter and verse. You got to give me the book in the Talmud. You got to give me the page. Uh, and by the way, much easier to do by right now. One of the things I really resent that what didn't exist when I was in high school is safaria.org not existing. <laughs> yes. I would have, I'm telling you, I would have had a 4.0 in high school in Talmud if they had had that darn website, if there had been the internet. I, I, I'm very upset. But that's my funny way of saying you have no excuse if you are evangelical, if you are Jewish, anything right now, if, and you are saying something is a Jewish teaching or a Christian teaching, and you are not citing chapter and verse or the line of the Talmud, or the line of the Shulchan Aruch, or the line of the, then you really are remiss. This is just, listen, it doesn't mean that your sentiment isn't right or wrong, but you cannot claim that this comes from a certain tradition when we are, you know, when, when so many sacrifices were made to keep our teachings and these books and these scrolls together. I'm going to ask you one more question, Reverend Chris, in just a moment, but I want to give a little bit of an update for our listeners here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Prime Minister Netanyahu will be addressing his supporters in probably about 20 minutes now, give or take. Now, that address will be in Hebrew. I can promise you that. So Jewish will, time. Jewish time, right. So it may not even be at 5 o'clock uh, U.S. time. But I do think that—so we will be listening into that, and we will be giving you uh, a, a little bit of a running commentary of that, because that will be a, 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 a Hebrew address, and we understand this is an English-language broadcast. So I wanted to make that clear. But I wanted to ask you, Reverend—again, Reverend, our headline being that according to these exit polls and the way that everyone is sort of acting right now in Israel now, it does seem like it is a very, very good night for Likud. So the last question I want to ask Reverend Crisp, though, is— Literally, the relationship between Benjamin Netanyahu and the evangelical community. And, by, and I want to ask that question by telling a very short story, because really the first Israeli prime minister who understood the importance of the support of the U.S. evangelical community for Israel was Menachem Begin. And the very funny story about him is that some of his supporters were very uneasy with that. They did not like the fact that, the, that he had such strong relationships with Christians. And they said, Prime Minister Begin, don't you know don't you know that they only are supporting you because they're trying to have the second coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus? And, and, and Menachem Begin, who was a very practical man, looked at them and said, okay, when the Messiah comes, the first question I ask him is, have you been here before? I mean, this idea that like this is something we should worry about. Obviously, when, when the, the major issues between devout Christians and devout Jews come into play, we'll be in an end-of-days type situation, and thank goodness for that. We're not dealing with... With, we're, we are no longer dealing with inquisitions or any kind of thing, things like that. Right, That's very important. Right. But I want to ask you, how has Benjamin Netanyahu been as a prime minister in his recognition of the evangelical community? Has he been patronizing or has he been supportive? I mean, what, what have you seen from him that sets him apart or doesn't set him apart? Well, first of all, uh, he speaks in many ways in uh, American uh, English. And that is a big deal in itself. He communicates well. He knows idioms. He knows our culture over here. And so he appeals on that level. But the other thing is, um, he uses the Bible often and he uses it correctly. He doesn't, uh, you can tell that this is not just something, uh, a line that he got off of Google to use. <laughs> uh, it, it's a part of who he is. And, uh, people sense that evangelicals, uh, by and large are very discerning. And um, uh, I think that is one reason why they support uh, Bibi Netanyahu. And sometimes, um, Jake, people think because we're so supportive of the um, of uh, the state of Israel that 
that means we agree with everything uh, Netanyahu or anyone else does or the government does. That's absolutely absurd. Uh, I was, I've been an American citizen all my 64 years, and I can tell you that there's been several administrations, especially the last one that preceded Trump, where I felt like uh, I was um, uh, a, a foreigner. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't go along with probably 80% of what Barack Obama did. But I prayed for him. I respected him because I respect the office. But I was just as American as ever was, even though I disagreed with about 80% of the decisions that my leader uh, was making. And so what I'm saying is, when we say we're pro-Israel, we're really pro-Israel. But Netanyahu makes that easier for us to do. Well, that's a, a very, very interesting perspective. And again, I think one of the most underreported stories in America when the, when they talk about voting for Israel, I think that if you watch the American news media, you would think it's either A, just the Jewish vote, or you would think it's an evangelical Christian vote that's only interested in some kind of a wacky end of days uh, scenario and is not even aware of the realities on the ground. And I think you've done you've gone a long way to debunking that this afternoon. And I hope more people would understand that that from a political standpoint, evangelical community support for Israel is not only vital, but it's well-rounded in the facts. It's well-grounded in what's really going on. So I thank you again, Reverend Tony Chris. He is from TLC Holy Land Tours. You can look, and he's all, coming to us from the state of Tennessee, by the way. i got to have a shout-out to the state of uh, to Tennessee, and I want to thank you for, doing, for joining us this afternoon. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, again, we're, we're just a little bit after the 4.30, hour, a half-hour point. It's 4.32 here in New York time. And again, our headlines here on this election special are on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host. We are seeing what is being just a number of reports from exit polls and some other sources that this is going to be a very good night for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud party. It looks like they are projected to win 37 seats, but we will see if these exit polls hold up and are more accurate. So one and, person yeah. uh, who's commenting, Jake, uh, is uh, Saeb Erekat with the Palestinian oh. reaction. Okay. And That's important. Uh, he's threatening violence, of course. Well, he says on Twitter, it's obvious that settlement, occupation, and apartheid have won the Israeli elections. Netanyahu's campaign was about the continuation of the occupation and conflict, which will force the people of the region to live by the sword, continuation of violence, extremism, and chaos. Of course, he represents a government that is now in year four, in year 15 of its four-year term. Yeah, I, I think uh, two things to take from that statement is, one, no surprise. I, I, but, again, if there are people listening this afternoon and, and later on this evening who believe that there will be any other response in any reality to anyone else winning the most seats in this election, again, we don't have final results yet, then you're being very naive. This has been the Palestinian standpoint against whoever is running the Israeli government, whether it's an Ehud Barak who was come from the center-left, whether it's a Benjamin Netanyahu, whether it's an Ehud Olmert, who is really the last Israeli prime minister to be able to sit down with Palestinian leadership and offer them a comprehensive deal. They walked on out on that as well, and it's important to remember that. So, folks, th- this is a, a typical kind of response. But as we were mentioning earlier in the broadcast, the Trump peace plan, which was rejected sight unseen for more than a year by, uh, Arab, by Palestinians, has been... It has been reacted to in some uh, quite positive ways by some other Arab states, particularly the Gulf states, the Saudi Arabian dominated states, but also not necessarily an out and out rejection from even a state like Qatar, which is trying to dance at all the weddings, sometimes is with Iran, sometimes is on its own. So honestly, that's if there's going to be any positive from this peace plan, and we don't know if there will be an enduring positive from it.
But if there is any positive, it will probably be from the fact that there has not been the same knee-jerk react- negative rejection of this from some of the uh, other states in the region. The Palestinians, we cannot expect any other kind of, of, uh, of, re- of response. Uh, listen, <laughs> the headline has been so far, and these headlines can change. I keep trying to emphasize that because we've seen this happen before. But the headline so far is it does seem like very, very good news for Likud and a disappointing night for Blue and White and their party leader, former Israeli Army Chief of Staff, IDF Chief of Staff, Benny Gantz. But that doesn't mean that this is in any way the end of politics in Israel. It's just This is just the, the, the latest result. And I wanted to get someone who could really tell us a little bit more about where Blue and White is coming from, a little bit more where, where Benny Gantz might be coming from. And for that, we're joined now by Shai Franklin. Shai is from Gotham Government Relations. He's someone who is very knowledgeable about both U.S. politics and Israeli politics, strong, strong supporter of Israel, but also someone who is more likely to say that there might be maybe a different view for Israel post-Benjamin Netanyahu. And Shai, I want to ask you, what is your, I mean, other than the obvious disclaimer that this may not, these exit polls may not hold up, what is your initial reaction to this news coming out of Israel and these results? It it seems convincing at this point. Uh, Obviously, a lot can happen overnight, but the the votes that haven't come in yet are more likely to be votes that cut toward Netanyahu, the army votes, and maybe some others. So uh, it, seems, it seems convincing. And even without, he'll be able to form a coalition, it looks like, without Israel Beitenu, because I think the Lieberman, as you may have already been reporting, that people know, said that he would only join a unity government, which, of course, Blue and White won't form a government with Netanyahu. Uh, the, the little wild card is, is in a couple of weeks, he officially goes on trial. Right. Some on corruption charges, but I guess if if he has the majority of the votes and people voted knowing that, then presumably uh, he can he can remain as prime minister because this, you need a majority of the Knesset to to vote him out of you know contention. So it seems like he's he's got what he needed. Another another uh, question mark is does he move forward with annexation at this point, or or was it uh, something more the uh, campaign oriented promise? Or even if he wants to do it, will he wait until he sees who the uh, Democratic nominee is going to be in in, uh, in July in the, in the Democratic convention for the presidency here in the United States? If Trump gets reelected, then then it's easier for him to do annexation. If the Democrats going to come in, they could be more problematic. So you've just heard Shai Franklin from Gotham Government Relations sort of seconding the motion a little bit in, in what we're seeing right now. And, and again, because the headlines are telling us you sometimes the sometimes unreliable exit polls, but, but, but when you add them with some of the results that we're seeing, he does also join in what does seem to be the headline right now, which is that it does look like it's going to be a very strong night for Likud and for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Shai, you're involved in lobbying, you're involved in, in communications and all these kinds of things, and, and everyone in the studio right now, Jim Nuzzo, who used to work with for President George H.W. Bush, uh, Mayor Weingarten, Mayor Frederick, listen, we're all either amateur or professional communications, po- political campaign analysts, that whole thing. So I want to get your take on it. If these results hold up, is there anything that you think Blue and White or Benny Gantz did wrong, or were there just external situations, news events that made it impossible for him? W- w- would you have done something differently? Well, I, they're not—they're not experienced politicians like like Netanyahu was. Hmm. You know that. Uh, so, I mean, people like Lapid is a great communicator. What they didn't—what they failed to do—and this may not be a matter of competence; it may just be the situation. It's, it's, they failed to come up with a convincing reason uh, why Netanyahu shouldn't be in office. Convincing to whom? Convincing to majority of Israeli voters. Uh, they, they had no. There was no real ideological differentiation. 
they were even echoing they were trying to catch up on the annexation issue, say, oh, yeah, we, we had that idea first. So, so how are they really distinguishing themselves? On tax policy? That's the one thing that Netanyahu, people on the left, I think Netanyahu got right years ago as finance minister. So, so what was the real distinguishing? U.S.-Israel relations? Was it outreach to Saudi Arabia? No, there was, there was very little. Religious, I would, yeah, I'm religious sorry. pluralism, sure, but those voters were already on their side. Sorry, I, 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 just one second. I want to go to Mayor Weingarten. I just want to add uh, something. Leading up to these last elections, there was a flare-up several times in the southern part of Israel where uh, shelling of the civilian populations by Hamas rockets from Gaza. When And, and it's a horrific trauma-inducing situation where Israelis are, even if they don't live in the area, they, they feel the trauma that the kids and the adults running, racing through a 15-second siren and so forth. When Benny Gantz was asked, what would you do different? And here he is, standing at the head of a party that has four former chiefs of staff. He had no answer. I think that in a lead-up to an election... If he didn't have an answer for that, people were saying to himself, so, so what's the point? Shai Franklin, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree. As, as I said before, in, in general terms, they're not professional politicians. Lapid, kind of, he grew up with, you know, as a son of a politician. But, uh, yeah, they're not, they're not professional politicians. They're not great communicators. Uh, it worked for Rabin, but Rabin had, it was a different time. You know, and, and Netanyahu has been in for 10 years already. So uh, even with the attacks, the fact that there was no major, there were flare-ups, but there's no, there no major war going on in the last couple of years, uh, that works to Bibi's advantage. The, the fact that there are missiles being fired, rockets, and, and there's tunnels being discovered and things like that, he can actually, he's very gifted, he's a very gifted communicator. And where some other politicians might have, might have suffered because of that, he was able to turn that to his advantage, say, you see, that's why you need me. You need me. To, to, to protect Israel. And enough people believed it. And look, you know what? He, I'm not saying he's a racist like, like maybe Bernie Sanders would say, but he certainly appeals to instincts in, among many Israelis that, uh, as opposed to, to oppose the other, whether it's the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, whether it's uh, Arab Israelis, whether it's uh, Democrats in the United <laughs> States, whatever it is. So, but being able to set that up, What's blue and white going to do? Is blue and white going to outpolarize Bibi Netanyahu? No. So it's very hard to make a compelling case why a centrist should be elected anywhere, let alone when you're under attack like that. And as, as you said, to not have a really good answer, to, 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 to inspire, to comfort, to, to steal Israelis, steal S-T-E-E-L, uh, yeah, I think they, they, they kind of blew it, but it's not entirely their fault. Shai Franklin, the Israeli public has moved right. Jim Nuzzo has a question for you now. Shai, I've got an interesting question. You know, there was a period of time in which Bibi almost became like King Bibi. He was sort of stepping back from the public. He was becoming almost impervious. Do you think that maybe Gideon Shar's attack on him for the the head of Likud, which therefore demanded that Bibi get into various... uh, you know, get, get into the cities, go and talk to uh, Lee Kuz one-on-one. He became a politician who was very good at retail again, something he had sort of forgotten about doing in the last two elections. And now he was getting to be a, a retail politician again. Could it be in an odd, interesting way that Saar helped BB? No, I think, I think you're right. You know, obviously, Saar is 
Saar's gambit could have could have worked against Bibi if he had gotten more votes. But he got first of all he got so little votes that I think it, it, it showed that Bibi was strong within his own within, within his own base, and that that was important. But then also for, he had to. Yeah, he had to go out and really campaign, and that, and that, that helped. That got him more into fighting mode. That, that happens in a lot of cases where, where the you know, primaries help, help shape the, the challenger. And Saar wasn't, wasn't far, far to the right in a way that, that, that people would have had to become even more, more right-wing than he was already. He wasn't more to the left. It, 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 was, it was a good, it was, it was more about politics, I think, than it was about ideology. So, yes, definitely, I, I would agree with that. Shai Franklin, I want to ask you about succession because this is something that probably unifies the left and the right in Israel because there's been such a problem with it. From the right-wing point of view, the one thing I hear from even the most enthusiastic Benjamin Netanyahu supporters is a disappointment in the fact that he has not been able to groom a successor. And I think almost all of us blame Netanyahu himself for that. There have been jealousy issues. There have been other types of problems. And every Israeli prime minister always had that person in the wings that he or she, in the case of, of Golda Meir, w- was sort of grooming sort of to be uh, the person to take over. And maybe not so much Golda Meir, but, but certainly she had people who, who, that she allowed to advance within the Labor Party during her time. And then, of course, from the left, se- left standpoint, as you just said, we have not really seen a compelling argument. I mean, this shouldn't happen in a parliamentary society, but humans are humans. And we glom on to human characteristics when we vote for a government, whether it's in a parliamentary system or in the United States when we have a representative government. And I was just wondering, what needs to happen now? I mean, listen, listen, Netanyahu has been, he's 70 years old. He's not going to be around forever. It must seem that way to a lot of younger Israelis. What needs to happen for somebody else to emerge, man or woman, somebody in Israel to be thought of either from the right wing point of view or the left-wing point of view, as a potential successor? Is there anybody out there now, or what needs to happen for that, to, for that to, situation to come to be? What we have now in Israel is a cult of personality. We have it in Washington, where I am right now as well. A lot of people on the Republican side are talking about, uh, you know, after Trump serves his two terms, maybe three, he says, but after <laughs> he serves his two terms, then maybe Don Jr. will run, maybe Ivanka will run. Uh, who can be the trust? to be anointed as a successor and not push him out before he's ready. Uh-huh. This was a, a classic uh, Kremlin problem during the <laughs> Soviet period, and I'm not comparing him to the Soviet Union, but, but this is a cult of personality. So who can he trust? You know, maybe he can trust Yair Netanyahu. Yair is more to the right. He's, he likes to uh, rile things up. But that <laughs> also gets people out to vote. Yeah. Uh, who I don't know. Any other potential successor seems to be, I mean, You've got people like uh, Donny Danon, who, you know, the U.N. ambassador. Not that he's not qualified to be U.N. ambassador, but it helps that he was a potential challenger within the Likud. Uh, Likud is going strong right now, but there have been other parties that were going. Labor was going very strong. Uh, 20, you know, married to Labor 25 years ago, 30 years ago. But uh, they rise and fall partly with personalities. I don't think with Rabin there was a cult of personality. That was partly his, his style. Perez never really had a... a, a a full mandate as prime minister, a, pop, a fully popular mandate. Goldemir, she served for she served for several years, and then and then she was blamed for 1973. So, so that 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 affected her. Uh, so I, I I really don't know, I, and I don't think Bibi knows. I don't think Bibi really thinks about that, except maybe his son. Bibi has succeed has successfully made it through this first term and now the last ten years by not having any long-term vision. I don't know if that's why he succeeded, 
but he's made it without having any long-term vision. There's no real vision for where this peace process would go, for example, if he annexes, if he doesn't annex uh, three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now. There's no long-range planning in terms of succession, building the party, getting through the getting through these legal issues. It's just it's one hurdle after another. He gets through them. He lives to fight another day. That's been his approach, and so far he's succeeded. And he's only 70 years old, which in American politics, he'd be the youngest in the race. (laughs) That's true. Good point. BBS pushed out anyone who started to come close to maybe threatening to be a successor. And he's done it very, very cleverly. And they say that he's very paranoid when it comes to these things. And anyone who, Donnie Danone, had some ideas and boom, you're 6,000 miles away. Mm. That's a mayor. So, Shai Franklin, listen, you're also pretty well versed in, in U.S. politics. And sometimes I'm loath to make too many comparisons because in some ways it is an apples and oranges type situation between the United States and Israel. But I do think that there may be some lessons... Just like I think there were some lessons from the British election uh, late last year, uh, or I, that actually may have been in January. So I, I, I do think that there might be some lessons. Do you think that there are some lessons here? Because one of the things that you've already mentioned that I think is very true of the Democrats as well is, look, there is an anti-Trump movement in this country, just like there's an anti-Netanyahu movement in Israel. And has this, ele- if this again, if these results hold, Shia Franklin, do you think that there's a lesson here in for the American politicians challenging Donald Trump, that they better come up with something other than just, I'm not Donald Trump? I think so. One difference is that there are not systemic differences necessarily. One difference is that Trump has only been in for three years. Right. And, and people still have a, a political memory of a time before Trump. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, for sure. Uh, I think, actually, there's a connection that the, the Netanyahu, Netanyahu's if Netanyahu is, is, is really re-elected and is able to form a, a convincing government, then I think that that actually helps Trump. Do you think and, also, uh, yeah. do you think so also um, the, the indictment factor, which I think may have hurt Netanyahu, I, I, listen, I, this, there are some people who like to go around saying, oh, these indictments help, help him. I, I don't believe that. I don't, but, but I do think that over time, because this darn thing took so long to happen, first they were announcing that they were going to announce an indi- whether they were going to do indict or not. Then they announced, hey, we're going to announce an indictment. Then they actually do have an indictment. Do you think that the, the timeline of this and its gestation period, for lack of a better term, may have also now finally come to the point where it's deadened the negative effect for Benjamin Netanyahu? People are not shocked by this anymore. And by the, by the time a third election rolled around, he was able to really overcome it. Is that something that you think happened in the last yeah, six, six well, months? I'm not sure if it's that it deadened, but, but it, something like that. I think what happens is once there's the indictment, uh, people make a choice. They're either staying with Bibi or they're not. The people that were going to stay with Bibi back then, they're staying with Bibi now. When, when Trump, there's nothing that's really come out in a, in a serious way about Trump in the last three years that wasn't already either known or evident or, or expected before he was elected. Anybody that voted for Donald Trump, almost anybody who voted for Donald Trump in, in 2016 has no reason to change horses. Nothing, and he actually beat the impeachment. It was basically just, it was obviously a political exercise on both sides. So you have the numbers and you win. Uh, another, another difference, though, is that in, in the United States, there is a real, other than the economy, which is still doing pretty well. Most people think it's doing pretty well, despite the 
latest Dow Jones developments and coronavirus and everything else. But and then of course there's identity politics. People who feel you know there's a, there is a racist element that is part of Trump's camp. We, we know that. Uh, not everybody, but it's there. Uh, but there are, there are significant ideological differences between any Democrat and and Trump. And in fact, if you look back four years ago, there were significant differences between the Republican ideology and, and Trump. So there's definitely a deep a deep well of, of people that the Republicans, if sorry, the Democrats, if they can inspire them, those people, will come out and vote for the Democratic candidate. And that's different than in Israel. I, I don't think, I don't know who else they could have tapped. Plus, in the United States, there is no, we do have a sort of a self-selected group that sort of, that, that, that might boycott the general election, which would be the Bernie Sanders supporters, any number of them. On the Israeli side, the only people who really, who are excluded from the final calculation are the joint list. So, I mean, Lieberman, of course, has sort of put himself in a situation where he's not participating on either side. But, uh, but we don't have an Arab list, a joint list here in the United States that is basically just not included. So I, I, I think those are some of the main differences between, between the U.S. And, and, and Israel. But identity politics is salient around the world. In, in the United Kingdom, we see it in the Philippines, we see it in India, what's going on. Uh, of course, India has always been about identity politics. Yeah. But this is a, a general trend now. I don't know if it's all connected, but, but we see it at least in parallel. Um, Shai Franklin from Go- Gotham uh, Government Relations joining us, and I, I can't let you go without. Yeah, I, I, you're 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 at APAC. You're you're at which I, I cannot blame APAC for some. I, I've heard a bunch of people telling me over the week, how can APAC have their conference during the Israel election? It's like it's not their fault. They keep having elections. You know, APAC has to have a certain. You, know, you have to you have to book rooms and 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 in convention centers and and, and the like. But. What has been the reaction at APAC, not just to these election results, because that's just a couple of hours old now. Obviously, the, the conference started yesterday. But what has been the feeling there? What's really the, the number one message? Because, again, it's been two years in a row now of APAC conferences where the, the APAC conference is really in a spotlight because of what people in the Democratic Party have been saying about APAC. So I was wondering if, if you know, what's been the response there to or, that? In this case, I would say person in the Democratic yes, Party. Yes, yes, Bernie Sanders. Well, I was thinking uh, about uh, Elon Omar the year before. Elizabeth Warren didn't really say anything. She sort of agreed with the questioner. Uh, right. But what's interesting, what I've noticed, and I checked, I checked with one of my, one or two of my uh, friends here who, who are veterans of, of APAC conferences in Washington and Jewish politics. There's really been almost, on the official agenda, there's been basic, almost no discussion of the Israeli elections. They have not, didn't have a, any sessions, sort of a backgrounder to the Israeli elections, what to expect, how it's going to impact. There's been almost no discussion of it. Uh, Super Tuesday, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about the American uh, Democratic primaries coming up in, in about, a third of the, about a third of the delegates of the Democratic Convention are up on, on Tuesday. Uh, but they've had most of the candidates have actually spoken either in person or, or by video or uh, satellite. But uh, it's interesting that it just it hasn't really been discussed. This morning, Vice President Pence spoke, and uh, a, a big chunk of his speech was basically a pitch for re-electing Donald Trump. And it was pretty well received. That doesn't mean that everybody was applauding. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to vote for Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that it was at all appropriate for this kind of uh, an event. But he did it, and it was fairly well received. I should say... Uh, Joe Biden spoke yesterday uh, via satellite, a, a video, I guess it was, I don't know what it was, but he was up on the screen, and he, he was actually, he was supportive of APAC, he was very supportive of the U.S.-Israel relationship, 
He stressed his uh, long, long friendship with Bibi Netanyahu, but he also made some some points about the importance of a two-state solution, and he he warned against annexation of the West Bank. And there was some applause for that. It wasn't like a rousing applause, uh, but he was he was well received. So I think there's there's a certain there's still a sense of bipartisanship. I would suggest that the some of my Republican friends have been uh, and, and Pence himself uh, have been warning about. On the one hand, they're warning against uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, candidacy as a, as a nominee because it can be really dangerous for America, dangerous for Israel if he's elected. Yet. My, my same Republican friends and the administration, I mean, well, that's Trump and Pence, are encouraging Republicans where there are open primaries to go ahead and vote for Bernie Sanders on Tuesday. So uh, there's, there's a little bit of, there's a bit of politics going around, but it's not, it's not really palpable if you walk through the, through the concourses and you sit in the halls. It's, it, it's not like there's two cheering sections. Uh, I think there's a APAC going back to 2016, had this issue where Netanyahu kind of preempted them on the Iran, on the Iran deal, and that caught them a little flat-footed, and that wasn't their fault. And now Trump has sort of, Trump has leapfrogged APEC, and he's leapfrogged Netanyahu in terms of annexation, actually moving the embassy, recognizing the Golan Heights. I mean, that was like, uh, that, that was like a third-tier a third priority, but right. he went ahead and he did it. So whether you like it or you don't like it, the fact is uh, APAC has had to play catch-up a little bit because APAC has a different job than Trump does, and they have a different job than Netanyahu does. They've got to be friends with, with, with both sides or all sides and to support the U.S.-Israel relationship. So, uh, so I, I, think they're, I think they're managing it pretty well. People are complaining more about the, the price of the food in, yeah. the, in, in the conference hall than they are about, <laughs> about any kind of partisanship. Although one thing I would say is, it's interesting. Another thing I would say was uh, the you get a, do, do get a sense the APAC speakers, the official APAC speakers, are a little bit more on a uh, on a an offensive uh, footing in terms of going after Sanders, right. uh, either by name or, or by by uh, inference, uh, by by uh, uh, general reference. Uh, then they they still stressing bipartisanship, but they're they are going after uh, they are going after Sanders. And, so, and I'm not surprised by uh, that, so that, Shai Franklin. That's a little new. Yeah, Shai Sorry? Franklin from Gotham Government Relations, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I'm not surprised by your last tone, because I was at the APAC conference last year in the aftermath of Congresswoman Ilan Omar's slurs against APAC, and she wasn't really mentioned or talked about. No. And I think, obviously, Sanders is a totally different kettle of fish, because you don't want to make an APAC conference with an undercurrent talking about a freshman congresswoman from Minnesota uh, it, it, that really wouldn't necessarily be worth it. But when you have someone who's running and, and currently leading the Democratic polls uh, for president, uh, I think that that's a time to be that's a time to be a little bit more on the offensive. So I'm not surprised by by your reporting. Shai Franklin from Go- Gotham Government Relations. I really appreciate your very insightful and and and, and you, know, you definitely understand what's going on uh, from the point of view of of blue and white and some of the other parties and also here in the United States. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. So I want to. Um, I want to again. It's it's four fifty eight right now here U.S. time, and I want to talk just a little bit about the headlines that we have right now because we have moved now from when we started at three p.m. to tentatively saying we've got some results. We don't know what's going on. It really is now more of an avalanche 
it is more now of a consensus that this has been a very big night, a very big, strong showing for Likud and Prime Minister Netanyahu. And Mayor Weingarten, you have some more uh, updates on the turnout numbers yeah. in this election. The final turnout numbers, okay. 71% wow. Wow. of eligible voters, which is 1.2% more than the previous election. Right. Which is pretty amazing that the previous election was 69 <laughs> points. I mean, you think yeah. about I don't know, what, what would you say in America the uh, voters Oh, it's less than 50. Yeah, uh, yeah so you're really 51, low, 52, so and, and that's huge. And that's huge. Right. Wow. Uh, you know, that was something that our first guest, uh, Yotav Eliak, talked about and, and, and actually fed into something that I was thinking could be a, a strong possibility that all these elections that Israel has been going through actually would stimulate more turnout because people want finally a resolution. Yes, that they're, they're sick of seeing it on television. I think they realize, even if I don't vote, I'm still going to have to see this on television on the radio all day. Maybe if I vote, I'll get a break from this for a little yes, bit. I think, no I, think, I think it's sort of the same way in which people look at Bloomberg commercials. I just want to stop. I just want it to stop. Please, God, make it stop. DVR everything. That's what I do. And hello and welcome to our third hour of Israel election coverage, live coverage here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host, and we have several headlines to update you on. If you have not been listening and haven't been following, we have real, for this hour, pretty definitive results considering what we are used to in in Israeli politics. What we are seeing from all the exit polls and most of the reporting and some of the other unreported, but we can say from our own sources, it does seem very much like Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud party have come out with more seats that will come out of this election with more seats than they did in the two previous elections. This would be a strong victory and a victorious night for Benjamin Netanyahu. He's expected to speak to his supporters at any moment soon. He'll be speaking, of course, in Hebrew, so we will listen in and give you some of the highlights. But it should be a very celebratory mood there. Uh, It is a morbid uh, morbid. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just didn't render the word. It is a morbid uh, situation at Blue and White Party headquarters. I can report that from Tel Aviv, from sources that I have there. They are certainly seeing this as a defeat tonight. They are not expecting a rabbit to be pulled out of the hat with some of the late results. Um, Netanyahu himself has tweeted a thank you note to the Israeli people with a heart emoji thanking <laughs> them for. So he's certainly in a celebratory mood. Although uh, our producer tonight, Mayor. Mayor Ferdig has mentioned that uh, this also his anniversary, so it might be another reason why he's sending out heart emojis. But uh, the folk, the fact is that we're getting that. Uh, that's an, a, one other headline, and again, in a, in, a, in a headline that I do not think is totally and completely unrelated to all of this, we had a twelve, a better than twelve hundred point gain in the Dow Jones Industrial Averages today. They five point one percent gain, and I believe the biggest point total gain ever in the history of the Dow for just raw points, although in these days it doesn't matter. It's, it's 1,000 points these days. is not as much as it would have been 10 years ago when we were below 20,000. So, of course, you have to keep that in context. But the point is we've had a 5.1% gain, the biggest single-day gain for the Dow in more than 11 years. And um, to me, I think that that was helped slightly. It, it, you know, Again, not in a huge way, maybe a 20% part of it, whatever, by the fact that we got some definitive results out of the Israeli elections and the markets like Benjamin Netanyahu, well, Jim I, Nuzzo. If you take a look at the timing, Around the time when the Dow, the Dow, the Dow was sort of flirting around and moving back and forth around two o'clock in the afternoon, New York time, and then all of a sudden, when things started becoming clear around three o'clock in the afternoon regarding uh, what was going on in Israel, the Dow took off like a rocket. So those are your results. Again, the headline being that it looks like it's a very big and positive night 
for Likud and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And now I want to get to some expert analysis and some also some other ancillary important headlines and, and, and important news from somebody who I'm really, really uh, very, very happy to have join us tonight. Tal Heinrich is a reporter. She's uh, she's, an, she's a sovereign. She's an Israeli citizen, but also been in the United States for several years. Uh, she's a former colleague of mine from I-24 News when we worked there together. Uh, both of us not there anymore, but certainly she's on. She's got her finger on the pulse. All things. She's been. If you've been at the APAC conference, you've seen her. She's been one of the people who's been moderating some of these interviews. So she's an important figure there as well. Tal, I'd like to get your your response to what looks to be some pretty strong headlines for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu. You told me before the show, even before these exit polls came out, that you had some thoughts about what may have caused this result. But tell me first your your, your response to these results. So my headline, Jake, great to be on the show. First, it's a big win for Benjamin Netanyahu, but this vote, vote was not only a referendum and on Netanyahu as much as it was in the two previous rounds. That, my, that, that is my main view. Um, it's a big win for Bibi, but the real story here is the failure of Israel's left. Listen, for many people on the Israeli right, this was first and foremost a vote against the left, more than it was a vote in favor of Benjamin Netanyahu. And, you know, uh, the real uh, genius part, I think, in Bibi's uh, third round of campaign for this year, I would say, that he has managed to convey this message once again, and he did it in 2015 when he ran against the Zionist Union. Once Netanyahu brings out the message that a vote for me is the vote against the establishment, although he's been the establishment in Israel for over a decade, he wins. And this is what he did tonight. I think the left in Israel lost this election, and by left I also include blue and white, of course. When I say left, I mean it's the new sort of center left that we see in Israel right. over the last decade or so. Um, then, then Netanyahu wins, and, and, and that's the, the real, uh, I think, magician's skill. Um, it's more of a loss of the left than a big win of, of Netanyahu. And, um, and it's a pattern that we see repeating here. I, I, I'm at APAC right now at the moment, by the way. And I, as I'm talking to you, I just got out of the general session. There was a, a former member of the Labor Party on stage, Ian Austin. And we see this pattern repeating whenever the left's main agenda and main campaign message is, uh, you know, having a monopoly on moral superiority, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in Israel, Jake. It doesn't work in the U.K., um, and, and, and it will not work again, I think, in the U.S. And what happened in Israel, and I told you this before, should be a, a big, you know, a, a big note, a big, a big warning sign for the American left if they really, you know, if they really want to have a chance against Donald Trump. And also, you know, a note for American media, in my view. You know, uh, Tal Heinrich, you, you make a point that I have made in many of my columns in both discussing the Israeli political situation and the U.S. political situation. And you just made that point again, and it's, for some reason, people don't learn this lesson, even though the evidence is very, very clear. When you are running against an incumbent, and I know it's a parliamentary democracy in Israel, and it's different from the, 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 the democracy we have in the United States, but it's still Benjamin Netanyahu. Look, he's the incumbent. He's been prime minister now for almost 11 straight years, 14 years total. By He's the incumbent in every way, shape, and form that you think of that. If your election against the incumbent and your election message is simply, we're not that guy, we're, di- we're, we're just we're going to replace him, but you do not make it clear the reason why you should go vote for somebody else what what's the reason to change what, what you know is it is it not just a protest vote and if you take a look at the three incumbent presidents in my lifetime in the united states who have been defeated each and every time the guy who beat him 
rarely even talked about him. Jimmy Carter, when he beat Gerald Ford in 1976, barely mentioned his name, and he certainly wasn't nasty to him. Ronald Reagan in 1980, when he defeated Jimmy Carter, mentioned Jimmy Carter's name, I think, once the entire general election campaign. And then Bill Clinton, who there was definitely there were some campaign surrogates for Bill Clinton against George H.W. Bush who were nasty, but he himself was pretty congenial and pretty friendly. And why people can't get through through their heads. And and it it was just so clear that Benny Gantz's campaign from the beginning was an attack on Netanyahu. And even if you think all those attacks are justified, I'm not making a a case for or against Netanyahu here or or Gantz. But from a campaign standpoint and strategy standpoint, did you see anything in the Benny Gantz or Blue and White movement that was really a clear difference in policy from Likud? Not really, not really. You know, in Hebrew, we say, rak lo bibi, just not bibi. <laughs> People analyze this uh, entire campaign through, you know, rak bibi, just bibi camp against the rak lo bibi camp, the just not bibi camp. But I think, again, that the vote that we saw tonight was just not the left. The left that claims to have a monopoly on moral superiority. That's the story. And, and you know the history of, of Israel. You know, uh, the Mapai, the Mapai right. party, the, I mean, the socialist communist party that, uh, uh, you know, founded the state of Israel with Ben-Gurion and and, and, and it it all seemed to play out once again in this election cycle, in the third round. Um, But but I have another, you know, partial list of uh, if the left in Israel is looking for uh, things to blame, what did not work this time around, then, you know, of course, Benny Gantz and the lack of the real agenda will be on top, but also Israeli media is a big mm. part of the story. Just like in, in the U.S., and you're very familiar with it, I know you also <laughs> read some Hebrew and you follow Israeli media as well. Um, you know, uh, people from the Israeli right, they feel underrepresented whenever they watch whatever evening or, or, or morning edition and no matter what channel they're watching. Yes, it has changed over recent years, but, but the anti-BB sentiment is always, always there and has always been there. And, and here I would like to add a, a note about Netanyahu's legal issues because, Jake, you know what? Many on the right feel, feel, are feeling that, you know, we should have known better. Netanyahu should have known better. Still, we don't know. We were waiting right. for the trial. We would want to see the results. And um, he won't be um, called to be removed from office uh, until a, an appeal stage of the trial is, is exhausted. So it could take years, right? right. But Netanyahu, from what we're seeing, from what we're hearing, uh, he should have known better because this guy had a legal target over his head, Jake, mm-hmm. ever since he first got elected. So, you know, um, you know what I'm trying to say yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that he could have he could have been, he could have done greater things if it wasn't for that. Yeah, I think that, and and again, the the lack of grooming a successor for those of us, uh, and, and you know, you don't have to even include myself for those people who really believe that the policies of Likud are clearly the majority of Israel and how they feel about things. Uh, it's dangerous that Netanyahu has not been able to get out of his own way and and groom a successor because look, even if he isn't willing to leave government at some point. I mean, God forbid he could get sick. I mean, there has to be, if you if you believe that the Israeli public at a 60-40% clip favor the policies of Likud, then there's an issue there with Netanyahu not picking a successor over and above what you just mentioned, which is political stuff. I want to ask you a question, because you mentioned it just now. What I think is is developing as to Chorban Rishon, Chorban Sheni, and Chorban Shlishi for the labor and the left in Israel. You know, the first destruction of their monopoly over power in Israel happened in 1977 when Menachem Begin was first elected prime minister, the first real non-labor candidate. So that for, that was their first destruction of their monopoly. Then they had Chorban Sheni, which is after 
the Oslo peace accords broke down and all that terrorism happened in Israel and the left took most of the blame for it, they not only lost their even footing that they had been taken down to an even footing, they became second class as far as their their power over the Israeli people. Is tonight a Horban Shlishi? Have they now come to a point now where the left, and even the center left by extension, is now having to tear up the, the, the blueprint completely and start over? First, I think it's Holban, uh, the, the fourth one, Holban Revi'i. Oh, okay. Um, and I'll explain because I think he sort of skipped the Zionist Union and their attempt, you know, with oh, right. me. It was uh, 2015, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and, and that was also a huge surprise. And Netanyahu managed, you know, to bring up the same element that, you know, a vote for me is a vote against the establishment, although he's been the establishment, <laughs> again, for over a decade now. So I do think that today, and, and I'll start off with blue and white again, and not the traditional Oslo Accord coalition of the merits labor. Um, I think that tonight, uh, Jake, mark it down, this is the beginning of the end of Kaholaban, of blue and white. I think uh, uh, today... Is, is really the, the, the beginning of their end, just like what happened to the Zionist Union, because it, it's not working anymore. Benny Gantz, uh, it, it just, it's not working. Yair Lapid will sooner or later, or already now is realizing that. And, and, and you probably know, uh, you know, you, you, you've been working uh, around political circles, and we can probably imagine what's going on within the party right now and, and the party with di- four different heads, um, each pulling on a, uh, to a different side. Um, and regarding the Oslo Accord Coalition, really the traditional left, uh, we've seen an incredible voter turnout, I think, uh, once again with yeah. the Arab uh, uh, parties, the joint list. I think they probably managed to, to uh, sway away some votes from the merits labor. Um, it, their agenda has always been peace, right? Peace at almost every cost, Jake. And uh, Israelis are, are a disillusioned, you know, over the years. Uh, they saw where this left has taken them. We went to Oslo. They believe we, we, we've gotten the bombs. We've got, you know, uh, uh, buses exploding on Dizengoff streets and in, in Netanya and in Jerusalem almost every week. Then they say we, we disengaged from the Gaza Strip. What have we we've gotten in return? We've gotten Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Iran inside the Gaza Strip and, and, and missiles almost every day, every month. Right? So um, Same with Lebanon. Yeah. Yes, right, right. And peace at almost every cost it doesn't work. It just, it's not a message, you know, whether you believe in it or not, there has to be another side um, for, for, for peace. And, and also the, the Israeli left, I mean, they have, they have been moving uh, rightwards over the last years as well, more towards the center. But yes, the entire Israeli society has been moving gradually rightwards. Does the American public listen? You're at APAC. Obviously, the that's all about the U.S. Israel relationship, and the people who are in that room with you and in that convention hall and at these sessions are probably very well versed on what Israel is really like and what the not only the political situation but just day to day life. But what should if you were speaking? Let's let's say this were ABC World News tonight or the CBS Evening News, and they were and I was asking you, what can you tell us? What's a take? What should American Americans who are interested in Israel or have some interest in the Middle East, what can they learn from this election? Not just for for Israel, but also for our own elections. What would you say? I think the message, the headline that I told you earlier, is that the left claim for of having moral superiority over right wing ideology. Um, it's going, it's going to go nowhere. I mean, uh, you're not going to win with, with this kind of message. Um, you, you, 
you weren't able to prevent Brexit with this kind of message. You weren't able to prevent, um, you know, Bibi Netanyahu regaining power once again and consolidating his power as he probably did tonight with such a message. So this is this is really the main takeaway for for I think uh, American media and and American left. Um, just in general, I think that is my that is my main thought, and of course, a dialogue. This should be a top priority if the left really wants to to raise up its head high uh, once again. Um, a dialogue, a dialogue, and you know who says it? Um, are you familiar with Jonathan Pye? I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm not uh, 100%. I, I, I disagree with uh, a lot of what he says. Uh, you know this British um, commentator, this British uh, news anchor? Well, it, well, tell us more about him. Go ahead, tell, tell Heinrich. Tell oh, us a little yes. more about them. <laughs> so, yeah. so, no, I, I'm just saying, um, this guy, in some way, he's, of course, he's coming from the left. He's very much, uh, he hates Boris Johnson, but he has a very interesting way of, of conveying a message of dialogue. Um, and it makes you want to listen to him. So, you know, I, I think... American left should, should and Israeli left should learn a bit from this and engage in dialogue and and, and instead of you know uh, say we know what's right and we want to decide for you, but that has been <laughs> the agenda. Very incredible insight from Tal Heinrich, who is calling us from the APAC Policy Conference, where she has been moderating some of the important interviews. Uh, tell us, have you had the uh, interview that you moderated with Ambassador Dermer yet? And if so, can you tell us how that went? No, no, Dermer is tomorrow, oh, tomorrow on the big okay. stage. I talked to Ambassador Danny Danon yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah, now that um, made some headlines. So this is not the one who made that made headlines because oh. he talked <laughs> in the several different forums. Okay. A, just Understood. Be more, a bit more accurate here, Jake. Yes. Um, so I interviewed him as part of the, it's called the Synagogue Delegation Showcase. Okay. Um, and it, it came actually after he delivered those remarks and talked about Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. earlier in the morning. Of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that none of this was coordinated with him and that Donnie Danone said um, what he said about Sanders um, on, on behalf of himself. Um, the ambassador did not want to follow up on that remark, I guess, on stage with me. So I, 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 I did not ask. I'm okay. not acting as a, as a journalist <laughs> right. when I'm here. Um, you know, at APAC, that's not my role. That's right. Um, but I do think, um, listen, he, he, I mean, I would have been surprised if, if no official from Israel, you know, had said anything. If this remark by Bernie Sanders was just, you know, overlooked here at APAC. Um, so that would have been surprising. I'm not so surprised that Danny Danone chose to say what he said. Plus, consider the timing here. I mean, it's right before the elections. Danny Danone is set to, um, to, to finish his term. You know, as Israel's UN ambassador, I think uh, he's going to be here until the summer, meaning he won't be here probably, maybe, to see, um, you know, the, the November elections as Israel's ambassador to the UN. So for him, I mean, why not? If you, if you think from his perspective, right, why, why not saying this message? Um, but Bernie Sanders, you know, he, he helped Netanyahu tonight. Yeah, he you know, Netanyahu. He yeah, Netanyahu. we've talked about that scenario about it by by making the fact that Israel that U.S. support for Israel is not necessarily completely in the bag when such a when someone who's leading all the national polls among Democrats for the nomination for president is is clearly I mean, listen, he's not just what he just said. Uh, and, and this is an objective statement I'm about to say for for all of those who, who who deny that. Please look into his history. 
Bernie Sanders is the most anti-Israel major presidential candidate in the history of the United States. And that does not mean that Franklin Pierce or James Buchanan would have been anti, would have been, yeah. if Israel existed back then. But since, listen, the state of Israel exists. Land, land, land of Israel is, is, is four or 5,000 years old. We understand that. But the state of Israel only exists since 1948. There has never been a major candidate like this, a primary winning, someone who's already leading in the polls for his party, who has been this anti-Israel. That is, that is a completely objective statement. Even if you support Bernie Sanders, you have to admit that that is true. And for somebody like that to make statements like this, to remind us of his positions like that, why do you think that helped Benjamin Netanyahu? I agree with you your conclusion, but I'd like to hear your reasoning. I think that, again, Bernie represents the world left. And I'm, I'm going back to this narrative again and again because it, it, it's a point that I just I feel like I have to make once again um, that he, he represents the world left. I mean, he, he believes in a world revolution. Why talking only about, you know, a revolution here in America, a left wing revolution in, in America? He believes in a world revolution. Um, th- that's part of his agenda. I mean, he's talking about what's working in, in, in Cuba, and, 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 and let, let's try to take the good things that worked in East Germany and implement them over <laughs> here, right? Because not everything was bad. That's the narrative. And I think, um, it, it, and it goes back to what I said earlier, that the vote tonight in favor of Benjamin Netanyahu was not only in favor of him. It was first and foremost against the left. Right. People have to understand that he is indicted. Uh, he's, you know, the trial is set to begin soon. It was supposed to be an easy walk in the park for Israel's center left, and, and it, it wasn't. Exactly right. for remarks of this kind on behalf of Bernie Sanders, you know? Yeah. I agree with you, Tal Heinrich, and, and you know, when you, ta- you mentioned it, revolutionary movements. And if you look at the revolutionary movements in the Western world, and some parts... Of the, uh, of the Eastern world as well, but certainly the Western world, there has always been a similar bumper sticker, if they ever had bumper stickers, which is, come for the anti-Semitism, stay for the revolution. <laughs> anti-Semitism and bias extension attacking the state of Israel is a way to get people to join revolutionary movements. It's a sad commentary, but it's true. Tal Heinrich, thank you so much for joining us from the APAC conference and for your insights into this ele- election results. Again, looking like a big night for, for Benjamin Netanyahu and Lili Kud. And we really appreciated you having us uh, with here uh, t- tonight. Thank you so much. Great talking to you, Jake. Um, I have a question for uh, our, our group here in the studio right now. Jim Nuzzo, former aide to President H.W. George H.W. Bush and from the Colchester Group, and also the host of the Israel Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network, Mayor Weingarten, and, and, and Mayor Furtick, who's joining us as well. Look, we've had a number of guests say this already now, and I think that this is an important factor. I understand that... It's a, that Israel and the United States have a lot of differences in, in, in a lot of ways. But one of the things I think we can agree on, whether you're pro-Benjamin Netanyahu or opposed to him, he is a good communicator. He's a good campaigner. That's usually what a lot of people, when they lose an election, say about. It's a nice thing to say about your opponent. In other words, it basically, sometimes it can be an availed uh, insult, saying, hey, he was a better liar than I was, and that people believed his stuff. But you know what? Communicator is a good way to put it. Look. I don't care if you're Albert Einstein or you don't have a third grade education. When it comes to elections, parliamentary or in a representative demo- representative government like ours, Republican government, Republican demo- a republic like ours, in the end, my theory is, and, and I'd like to hear what, what the folks here in the studio have to say, in the end, so much relies on the personal engagement and personal connection, persuasive powers of an individual candidate, and I believe it's just it's 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 no contest between somebody like Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz. Jim Nuzzo, your thoughts? Uh, look, there was an old line that uh, uh, President Reagan used to always quote Tip O'Neill that all 
politics is local. Actually, one thing that President Reagan said is all politics is personal. Mm. And he would basically ask on a personal basis. There'd be a connection, almost a visceral connection between Reagan and, and his voters. Take a look at, at Trump. Take a look at, at Netanyahu. Take a look at Boris Johnson. Uh, three very different personalities in some respects, but one of the things that sort of gets each one of them, which is that they have a visceral connection to their voters. One of the things that we're seeing tonight, now, one of the, it's always wonderful when, when elections happen, is that the losing side goes and cannibalizes itself and destroys itself. And we just got something that just came across was that Labour Marats basically sort of said, well, Blue and white had a horrible election. They didn't know how to communicate. They didn't know how to connect with the voters. That's a, that's the opposite side of what you were just saying. You're absolutely right. If you go to a Trump rally, like him or not like him, there's something visceral that happens. If you go to a Bernie rally, like him or not like him, there's something that's visceral that happens. You go to a Biden rally, not much happens. Not many people go. Yeah. Not, he has not, empty halls a lot of the time. Yeah, and not much happens. And at the end of the day, the question is, you know, I used to always say when when people were saying, I I I want to, I I I want to run for president, and I said, well, or I want to run for whatever it happened to be, senator or dog catcher. Do you have people who would lie down on the street for you? Are you able to get your supporters to put everything aside and sort of? devote their lives to you and that requires a sort of personal magnetism that if you don't have it as as bloomberg is discovering you can't buy it you know there's i'll I'll shut up after this there's an old line in advertising there was an advertising campaign for this dog food and they did everything right and they spent millions upon millions of dollars (laughs) in order to advertise this dog food and at the end of the day the dog food failed and the manufacturer came to the advertisers and said, why? I did everything you said because the dogs didn't like it. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you can be spend uh, $500 million as Bloomberg has done. But if they don't like it, you're going nowhere. I would, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm eyeing um, and trying to listen at the same time. In two yeah. minutes, they're coming back from commercial and they keep promising to update the exit polls. Oh, okay, okay. So, Mayor, uh, Mayor Weingarten watching that note. That well, we'll try and keep uh, track of that. Yeah. I think there's a point that uh, an American um, voter is different than an Israeli voter, a major point. Israel is under an existential threat. That's right. And sure. therefore, although it's true that Netanyahu is charismatic, is a great speaker and knows how to work the crowd and he's a great politician but there is a core support in Israel who at this point say anyone on the left they could be very charismatic we're not going there because they have taken us down a road which threatens our very lives and Netanyahu doesn't Uh Netanyahu is hopefully saving our lives in his campaign against Iran, and of course in his his tougher uh, stance. And I think also that, you know, a Bernie Sanders who is getting votes in the, what, hundreds of thousands already, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. From young Americans, right? That would never happen in Israel because the young people in Israel are much more grounded. They're in the army. They're more right-wing than the general population. Right, because they're in the army. Yeah. 
and they're fighting and they're seeing what we, the Jewish people, are up against. And they, they're, they're not dreaming some pie-in-the-sky socialism. And I think that has a tremendous uh, effect on when, the electorate. When, when, when bombs fall on you. That has a real good way yes. of sort of concentrating right. yes. the, the yes. mind, and we we you know we sit back here, and I always say to my friends of mine who are on the left, uh, Israeli left, even though they're Americans, you really don't have the right to judge because you don't have to wonder as to whether or not you're going to be able to get to the bomb shelter in time. That's a hundred percent true, and uh, and I think that really has a tremendous impact on uh, the elections in Israel. Um, you know, just to prove that we're not all just parroting right-wing examples of, of better campaigning here on the Nachum Siegel Network on us live election coverage here in Israel, I, I would throw in the kind of people who were able to do that from either the left or the Democratic Party here in the United States. Bill Clinton uh, was a ent- very, very engaging person, and I think the fact that Hillary Clinton is such a – the polar opposite of that is making people forget how personally engaging Bill Clinton was. Everyone I know who ever met him – even people who were really, really viscerally opposed to all of his policies and to him personally would say, you know, in person, he, he, I liked him. In person, it was hard not to like him. And you need that in American politics. And I will agree with Mayor Weingarten, host of the Israel show here on the Nachum Siegel Network, that obviously in Israel, I think that there are some policy factors and some existential issues which play a bigger role than they do in the United States. But I will say this. When you take a look at a candidate, a candidate still has to have some kind of an en- oh, either engaging personality totally yeah, or a personality that you can glom onto. I mean, the Golda Meir, and by the way, I, I must highly recommend the book Lioness by Francine Clagsburn. I know it's a few years old now, about four or five years old, certainly not an old book. But Golda Meir understood what her public persona was of a wise Jewish mother type persona that she played. She knew that even in Israel, which is under a real, I mean, a much ser- more serious existential threat during her pre- premiership, I mean, the Yom Kippur War, and certainly, the, you know, she was there during the founding of the state. But even she knew that with all these factors involved, and even in, in it was basically a one-party state at the time, that she would have to play some kind of person, a, a persona. She would have to project that, and she did. And I, I can't recommend that book, uh, you know, more. And, of course, The Prime Minister's is another great book right. to read and understand that. But here in the United States, I think we're dealing with something very int- similar in that, we have Democratic candidates who are definitely coalescing around a strong, in, among Democrats and some moderates, an anti-Trump feeling in this country, absolutely among the left and the Democrats. They don't have to worry about that part of it, but they need to get a persona. And every time they seem like they're getting there, they take two steps back. Bernie Sanders certainly has a strong personality, but I think he also that personality also turns a lot of people off, so there's a problem there. And then you have somebody like Joe Biden who has been not as engaging a person as he once was, and yesterday gives what I thought was the best interview he's given in years to Chris uh, Wallace on the Fox Network, and then he ruins it at the end by being kind of Averbuttel, you know, senile, and calling him Chuck. By the way, way, today he said, uh, you know, Go out there and vote tomorrow on Super Thursday. Oh, I, I can't, you know, I, yeah. it, it just, he writes, These are the he writes things his own that were jokes. happening to Gans. Yeah, yeah. This and, type of little yeah, things listen. that then become a joke. Yeah, right. listen, I mean, I, I interviewed Benny Gantz right before this first election. So it was almost a year ago now at the last APAC policy conference. And there was one thing that he did that, you know, listen, we talk about levels of persuasion. When we talk about persuasion, we think of, oh, does he have a good smile? Does she have a good way of engaging with people? All that's important. But there's something really important about persuasion, and I know Jim knows a lot about this because he worked for the first President Bush. The least persuasive thing you can do as a candidate is also the least persuasive thing you can do on a date, which is telegraph that you're not all that interested. 
Oh, my, and I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I was there when President Bush looked at his watch at, right. during the during the debate, and we looked at each other and said, "It's over." Yeah, <laughs> it was just the motion of looking at right. the watch. It was almost like, "Do I really have to be here? Is there someplace else I want to go?" It was a subliminal message to the American people: I don't want to do this job anymore. Right, and Benny Gantz took that and ran with it i mean every interview he did even when it was a favorable interviewer and i he really didn't look like he wanted to be there and it wasn't even like a telegraph he was he was visibly pained and you know what listen that might speak well of the man maybe that makes him a better general that he's a little bit less good at glad handing and and hot air but listen you need a little bit of that even in, again if you need that in israel which is under existential threat and under rocket fire then how much more so, you know, Homer, do you need that in the United States where we're not dealing with that? You absolutely must have that. You look and, at uh, yeah. your Lapid has it. Yeah. He has a charisma. He has the ability to communicate and to connect. And one of the mistakes that Blue and White made was to push him away from the center of attention. And this go round, they pushed away the others yeah. who were part of the cockpit. They called them the cockpit, the four like <laughs> pilots. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and put Gantz in front, and ultimately that really, like you say, here's a great personality who doesn't know how to speak well, doesn't communicate well, doesn't connect well, and that's one of the reasons. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think they were in a very difficult place. I mean, Lapid was out in front, and then Lieberman basically said, I, I'm not going to go into government with a chance that Lapid's going to become prime minister. So you had an issue in which they were playing not only against uh, Lee could, but they were also planning to try to get the get yeah, Lieberman but, but, to come but, on board. But uh, but uh, Lapid then backed down and he said, "I'm I, I give up my my rotation spot." So that did away with that, you know, with that part. And both Lieberman and Blue and White ended up going down in this election yeah. between the two of them. You we're, know. we're speaking with Mayor Weingarten from the Israel Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and also Jim Nuzzo uh, from the Colchester Group and a former aide to President George H. W. Bush. As we are. Covering live the Israel election results, obviously from Israel. We've been covering it ever since 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time when the first exit polls came out. And now joining that that evidence, the evidence has started to avalanche and snowball to a point now where it is now looking very much like a good night, strong night for Likud and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, where he will probably come out, according to all these exit polls and these numbers, First of all, a strong turnout that we could we were able to report to even before the polls closed that the turnout was strong hour by hour. And that held up one point two percentage points higher than the last time, which already was a higher turnout than expected that in September as well. And also just looking like there was going to be some kind of immediate path to 60 seats in the Knesset for the right wing block, not including Lieberman. Now I'm talking about. Uh, Likud and Otsma Yehudit and, and places. Well, I shouldn't Otsma mention Yehudit them. Is they, out. They, they are not out. Yeah, so I'm talking if, about if the religious there, party. If there's no 61, it's yes. probably because they took yes. one uh, I, seat I, away from the right. Right. I'm talking about Yemina. 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 Shas. Aguda. Yeah. The, so those that would be, according to these exit polls and these results now, which probably will start to look even better when we get the military count in. We're looking at 60 seats, maybe 61. Maybe there will be no need for any kind of defection. But if he comes out, if Benjamin Netanyahu comes out of tonight with the 60 seats at least that we we're expecting him to have, it's very unlikely that some one or two people won't come over and form this government, certainly to avoid the fourth election, if for no other reason. So those are some of the headlines. Uh, again, just to put more of a, of a point on the evidence that we're dealing with right now, 
we are seeing a jubilant Likud party headquarters in Israel and a very downtrodden, almost empty Blue and White Party headquarters in Israel. So they're not only seeing what we're seeing, they're seeing some other evidence that leads us to, right. to that. Mayor Ferdinand. There is one place in Tel Aviv where they are celebrating, okay. by the way, and that's 15,000 people hearing Lionel Richie there tonight. Oh, right? okay. Well, uh, uh, and Lionel Richie, a very savvy investor, which is my strained but true segue into the fact that another headline is that the Dow Industrials closed up more than 1,200 points today, and a big part of that uh, that last hour surge for the Dow when it was got all the way down to almost 400 only 400 points up came along with the time that we got this news coming out of Israel and I happen to think it was a small contributor but still a contributor to some of that surge because the Dow investors on Wall Street like Netanyahu they like certainty coming out of Israel I think they got a little bit of both of, uh, at the last hour Jim Nuzzo. I also think there's one other place which is probably very quiet not particularly happy today and that's the AG's office because right now if you're the attorney general mm. Are you going to really push as hard as you thought you were going to push in order to get rid of the pre- uh, get rid of the prime minister who has just been able to deliver this election mandate? He has I, no choice. Well, yeah. he has a choice. You can you can prosecute and you can prosecute. <laughs> hmm. Have, having having oh, in worked, that sense, you're yeah, saying yeah. Well, that would really be the 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 largest egg omelet on the face that you could possibly imagine. That if after all this. He walks out of there totally innocent because, (laughs) you know, they went easy on him. That would be, I mean, mean, right now, I mean, this, to my mind, was a one of we've been talking about the fact that this was a this was in some respects a an election based on Netanyahu. It was a referendum. It was a referendum on on Netanyahu. And Mandelbilt was basically told, we want him as prime minister. That's right. Are you going to stop him from being our prime minister, but, Mr. Attorney General? But, but the the Knights of Justice, that's what they're called in Hebrew, Abirei Ashilton, Ashilton will say, but that's our job. Our job is to tell the people he's a bad man. We know more than you. We're smarter than you are. You're just the people. And Shakade is sitting there saying, please do this. Would you yes, please yes. do this? Because I really want to Shaked go destroy you. has fought and fought to change the system. And she's made a tiny dent. The I don't know if you guys are into this whole deep state thing. In Israel, it's called the deep shtetl. Yeah. So, so the, I, I have come to believe that in Israel, in the Justice Department, through leaks to the media, through, um, you know, the deciding to prosecute this one and not that one for the same crimes and so forth, they're out to get Netanyahu. True. And, the, and I think that turned a lot of people off. But they believe, the people and the judges and all the, uh, the prosecutors and the lawyers in the Justice Department, they believe that they know better. Well, I'll tell you, if I, if I was Netanyahu, I'd give the Justice Ministry again to Shakade with a with a license to go hunting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could be. I would I would do the same and one of the things he might do also is ask for immunity. Sure. Knesset immunity which he can get. Right. It would be only until his term is over, but that's 
fine for him. Hey, look, he's 70 years old. Yeah. He, you know, yeah, five he, more he, years he's playing. Well, uh, he's in that game of, you know, somebody's good. The dog will die. The parts will die, yeah, right? And, exactly. Uh, well, Mayor Weingarten, Jim Nuzzo, I, I think we can all agree that is something that the attorney general would love to see, an, inter- an immunity thing passing so he can stay out of having to make this this uh, agonizing decision. Yeah, there was a point that they were talking about making a deal, and they said that would yeah. be the best thing for the attorney general, the best thing yeah. for the Justice Department, because then they wouldn't have to end up That's bringing right. this... These are they for could Kafka. Add, this for Kaka. right? <laughs> you know, one of the 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 things that he's being accused of is getting a bribe, and the the, the it was positive coverage yeah. in the media, and he didn't what, get it. Is what he <laughs> what he was supposedly got in return? He gave something which is not even clear, and and uh, Nat Lewin came from the United States and and um, testified before the attorney general in a committee. And said, if you are going to say that positive press coverage is a bribe, you are undercutting all of freedom of speech throughout yeah. every democracy in the world. It's also the way in which governments work. Yes, well, that's that's the point. If, if, then any police person, investigator can come to a newspaper and say, why did you write this positive piece? That's right. Oh, there's a deal going on and we're going to get you. Uh, and and it didn't help. I think there's an undercurrent here as well. And again, you're listening to live election results coverage here from uh, on, on the Israel election here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We are coming to you live from New York, giving you really the only continuous English language coverage of what's going on in Israel in this very important election. The headlines being it looks very much like a strong night for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu in this third election over the last 11 months in Israel and potentially... A, an end to this stalemate, to this deadlock, to this logjam, whatever word you want to use in Israeli politics right now, it does look like we will finally have a very clear path towards a coalition government for a Likud-led government. So that is our main headline tonight. But another part of, of the story is really, as as Tal Heinrich just told us in, in our last phone interview, it is really the collapse of the center-left in Israel, which continues to flounder uh, really ever since... The the uh, Oslo agreements, they've been on such defensive and they've been shrinking. And this was a, a, an attempt to, to just use the anti-Netanyahu sentiment, which certainly exists in Israel. When you've been prime minister for 11 straight years, it's going to happen, even if you're doing a great job. That's what happens in, in democracies. And they still weren't able to, to oust him. And it's a, a very interesting result. Uh, one other thing I want to mention is also the fact that we can learn, I think, a little something in our own American politics uh, about this election because of a couple of reasons. First being, there is a feeling in Israel among some experts, and Tal Heinrich was, was, was one of the people who believed this, and I think Shai Franklin didn't exactly discount it either, that the comments against AIPAC and the anti-Israel comments and positions of Bernie Sanders and the, his surge in the Democratic primaries and the Democratic race for president helped Benjamin Netanyahu. Because Netanyahu is seen in Israel as someone who would be able, if necessary, to stand up to a potentially hostile U.S. president. And the objective fact that Bernie Sanders, despite the fact that he is born of a Jewish mother and father, is clearly, without doubt, the most anti-Israel major presidential candidate in American history. You might support those positions, but there is no denying that, and that may have helped Netanyahu in the end as well. And another thing that I think we can learn, and we've learned, we've heard this from all the guests, both, and we've had guests like Shai Franklin, who is not a strong supporter of Netanyahu or a supporter of Netanyahu, and we've heard it from people who are, this understanding that just running a negative campaign against an incumbent, whether you're in the United States or Israel, without presenting an engaging, noteworthy, 
inspiring candidate of your own is going to fail. And we've seen that so many times, whether it's these people that they've put up against Netanyahu, somebody like a, a, a Boogie Herzog, who came and went and, and was gone. And now a, 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 ben, a Benny Gantz. These people have, have come in and out of, 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 of the stage and, and we don't hear from them anymore because they all they were were kind of the I'm not I'm not this guy. I'm not Netanyahu. And I think we've seen that in American politics as well. John Kerry, who ran against George W. Bush in 2004, I think won the nomination solely based on the fact that he had a combat history in Vietnam and George W. Bush didn't. And they thought that with the Iraq War and with George W. Bush's own Vietnam era service in question, wouldn't it be great to get someone who actually fought in a combat situation in Vietnam on on a swift boat? And then people looked at him and said, well, what else is there here? There's nothing here. And that was 50, 40 years ago. I really don't know what to say about this guy. So I think that we're learning an important lesson. This is something that I, I, I write this all the time in my columns. If you're running against an incumbent, you can't just say, I'm not him or I'm not her. You've got to give people a compelling reason. And the people who have succeeded at doing it, by the way, a couple of Democrats, Jimmy Carter in 1976 and Bill Clinton, especially in 1992. This is not a right-left thing. This is just a 2 plus 2 equals 4 type calculation. And that's what I think we've learned. I think Go ahead, we, Jim Nuzzo. I think we've also learned that when you're really concerned about the security of the state, when you don't, when you need to have someone who is strong at the helm, you want to have steady hands. And the hands that Benny Gantz might have great hands, but he's untested. And the one thing you knew about Netanyahu is you have ten years of him being very well tested against both with presidents who have been favorable, like Trump, and presidents who have been very unfavorable, like Obama. And right now, they want to have somebody who's very tested. They're, they're, the bombs are falling in southern Israel. There's even Tel Aviv and Jerusalem had sirens go off. And when you have that, you want to make, you don't have any margin of error. And when you have no margin of error, you're going to go back to that guy who you know will be there. Who you perceive. Well, it's always perception. Right, because the truth is that Netanyahu hasn't been able to do anything about the bombs, but Gantz had no no answer either right. when he was asked. So they said, so we'll stay with the person we know and, and has done so much for us, as you mentioned, the, um, you, the high-tech uh, startup nation and right, other things right. and opening the world and the, and the Gulf states and all these things. People are saying, hey, you know, he, even though we don't have an answer for Gaza, the other guy doesn't have one either. And, and the other thing is, you, you take a look at Netanyahu, and, and he, even though he didn't do a great job when he was finance minister, the, uh, the economy is now roaring in Israel. Yeah. It's now being looked at not only by European nations in America, but by the Gulf states as being the way forward for themselves. He is able to sort of go and take Israel from a pariah nation in a lot of from a lot of these places, and now making them, if not quiet, not only just even quietly, but overtly, people are now coming to Israel. There's, there's, yeah, and there's been the largest rise in tourism. I don't know if you know this, Jake, but you're talking to a guy that for the last 35 right. years sent Jewish groups. Right. That's so, right. No, I know so that's I why. and the pastor would be able to have <laughs> such an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, but. The tourism has gone up. The number one rise in tourism is Jerusalem in, of every city in the world right. year over year. That's also an amazing thing. 
one of the biggest, sadly now we're gonna we're gonna feel it. But you know what? One of the biggest influxes was Chinese tourism, yeah, right. which now is gonna be Weaker. unfortunately <laughs> gone at least for a while. You know, I want to ask the panel based on some of the things you touched on. I think this is also another parallel between Israel and the United States as we look at the Israel election results here on the Nachum Siegel Network. You know, one of the things that people have been saying as they look at these candidates running for president, including people who don't like President Trump, and then people looking at election situation in Israel, and they all ask me the same question. Is this the best and the brightest of America? Is this the best we can, we can, we can hope for? And I want to ask Jim and both, and Mayor, and also Mayor Furtick, is it possible that the reason why we're not getting some of these better, the best and the brightest running for office is because in places like Israel and the United States, when you look at tech, and you look at some of the business opportunities out there, if you're a best student in your college, doing really well in your graduate school, would you go into politics right now in either country, Jim? It's not even so much going into politics because there are other opportunities. I mean, you just take a look. Politics is a blood sport. Mm. And the difference between it and the use other you know, going into a regular blood sport is you get killed once if you're if you're in the arena, <laughs> <laughs> right? You go and you and, only uh, get killed once. You only get yeah. you, you know, the, the gladiator just has to chop your head off off once. But in politics, there it's it's a it is become so distasteful nowadays that you almost wonder whether or not you're psychologically there's something psychologically wrong with you. To want to get into the battle that has become uh, electoral politics. Or if, or if you're somebody who would just be given to say, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But you have to just one. I mean, but it's, it's you know, you, you take a look at someone. This is where, why you look at Buttigieg. And, you know, Buttigieg probably when he was seven years old decided that he was going to be president. Yes. And he, man, he checked off every single box he made certain he even got that you know and, and if you're in washington by the way when, when i was working in the white house i had an older fellow come up to me and said would you like to be in the navy yep. and i said excuse me <laughs> well we can make it so that you can get a naval commission and i said oh i said yeah it's it's it's, it's actually kind of easy you go you pass your physical you already have the security check because you've got you're in the, here, White House. In the White House, and so you go through it, and uh, it means that you go go to the naval yard once a month for a weekend, and you get to go and say that you're a naval officer, which is what Buttigieg was able to do. Oh, wow. and and, 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 and Lyndon and, and B. Johnson and Lyndon Johnson. I mean, it, yep. so it's it's one of the the Navy isn't stupid. They take a look <laughs> at those people who they think are going to become people. That's of, interesting. People at the top, and they say, "Hey, look what do we care." We'll make him a, make him an officer. So that's how he got. Well, you lost out. Yeah, well, I was I was I wasn't smart enough to say yes. Um, but I mean, you take a look at, at Bud- someone like Buttigieg, and you think there's something wrong. I mean, you you want us as seven to be able to go and do this, and people just beating you up on an hourly basis and getting into every certain detail of your life. Um, I, I I take a look at, at folks who go into the arena, and I, I'm reminded of that great quote of, of Teddy Roosevelt about the fact that that it's 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 truly is a, a blood sport, and you have to sort of take your you know take your hat off for for them. But then to get to the mayor had said earlier, which is if you're if you're someone like the prime minister, and someone offers you a, a bribe, not talking about the, the bribe dealing with the news the news media but the the, the cigars 
That was, that wasn't even a bribe. That was a gift. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but the, you know, yeah. that was. Did something in the head go? You know, just say no. Right. You know, the old Nancy Reagan line: "Just say no." But but you know, he wasn't alone. Oh no! Of because course not. because his wife controls oh. a tremendous amount of what goes on in that house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jewish. You know, Jewish and, wife. What can and, you say? Right. And, I'm married to one. So what can you do? I um uh. I, before the, the the first election in this last 11-month 11, 11 cycle, back in April of 2019, I was able to go to Israel to do an interview with Netanyahu a couple of days before the election. When was this? I'm sorry. So this is April of 2019. Oh. So the, the first of these three. And that required me and my crew uh, to wait outside his office at the official residence for several hours. Uh, we were there for a long time. Everyone was complaining about it except for me. I wasn't complaining about it because I got to see so many people I knew coming in and out of the, that, that li- not only the office, but the living room, to Mayor Weingarten's point and Sarah Netanyahu's control over the household. Sarah was holding court, court in the living room and deciding, and you know, th- th- there was no, the, the blinds weren't drawn, so I was able to see what was going on there. <laughs> Bibi was in his office, in and out of his office, and when Sarah felt that whoever was in the living room at the time, at the back of the house there, for those of you who know the Prime Minister's residence, it's an Emek Rafaim. It's on uh, Balfour. Right. They, she would take him out of the office and bring him in to sit at the couch with whoever was there. She was very gracious, by the way. Very, very nice. Uh, and then the, he would either go back to his office or another part of the house. When we did the interview, that was in the office because he wants to sit in front of that map that he has where I, I really think they made Iran larger in that map. Just so <laughs> knows that Iran is, is looming over Israel in many ways. I, I was trying to do that. Is this to scale? Because Iran looks really bigger than the Soviet Union. But no, just kidding. But but there is something to that. And listen, but that to me is a part of the answer to this question. Is someone who is of the highest quality, the smartest, most effective person going to get into politics? Because even if he or she is willing to play that blood sport, what about the wife and children? Now, I have pledged in my own heart many times never to run for office. I don't even want to work in government necessarily. Obviously, that might be something on Colt Nidre that I'm going to have to be, <laughs> be, be, um, be excused from one at a time. But I can say this. If I ever change my mind about that, I really think it's not going to happen until my kids are no longer kids, that they're grown out of the house with families of their own. Not that that would make them immune to it, but at least I won't be dealing with someone who's still in high school or younger than that having to answer to uh, what their father or mother is doing. I think that that's a big thing. But in the United States, if you're a top-level student, a top-level mind, someone who really wants to do po- make positive change in this country right now, I really don't think that it's been the case. I think it's been more than 30 years since politics has been the way to do that. I really do. Um, again, we're at 5.52. We're coming up on to what will be our, our, our final hour or so of, of coverage here on the Israeli uh, election for 2020. And again, the headline being, it looks like this is a big win for Benjamin Netanyahu. And the questions that now move ahead from this, from these results that seem to be accepted now from all sides, again, nothing official yet, but it is looking more and more like it is a big victory for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu and the right-wing bloc to be able to either have a coalition right off uh, off the bat or at least only need one or two people to come over and make that coalition. The The, the question now is, where do they move from here? Will there be an immunity uh, passage in, in Knesset to make that 
a trial that's supposed to go on later this month not happen? Will that be something that, that Netanyahu immediately goes for? So these are some of the questions that we're looking at, even if these results now are final. Jim Nuzzo. Well, I, one of the things that, that our American listeners will be interested in, it doesn't matter very much to Israeli folks, but to a lot of folks who are in the United States who are reform, who are conservative, or who are, are secular, the control of the Rabbanut on matters of family law, conversion, and, and, and the like, was an, an issue that matters very little to Israeli voters, but matters a great deal. It, it matters to secular Israeli voters. Yeah, it, yes, but, not, but it, that's where the Lieberman factor came in. They failed, right? right. Lieberman has failed. Uh, there's actually a breaking piece in which Litzman, who was the head of United Torah Judaism, basically said that, uh, that Avador Lieberman has failed. So yeah. the question is whether or not there's going to be any reduction in the power of the Rabbanut. The answer? No. No. And I'll tell you something. It, it has become apparent and much more spoken of in Israel over the last few years that although the majority of Israelis are not, let's say, orthodox, let's use that word, the majority of Israelis are somewhat traditional in the orthodox, under the orthodox umbrella. In that mold. Yeah. Right. That if, mold. They're, if they're going to go to shul or do they're something, going they, will do orthodox, right. yeah, they will do it through an orthodox Especially setting. Especially the Sephardic. Yes. Right. Oh, they're updating, so let me just... Well, okay. Well, 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 one Mayor's going to look at some numbers while well, Jim well, well, Yeah, while, while Mayor's doing that, the one thing that, uh, if, if I was BB, that maybe you might be able to get out of Shah's and United Torah Judaism is... The uh, allowance for buses and other sort of public transportation in those cities outside of Yerushalayim uh, on Shabbat. And that may be enough of a bone that allows Lieberman to basically sort of say, well, I'll come on in. Okay, Mayor Weingarten, you've got Down one. Okay, so the Likud is down one. Right, so now they're saying that the right-wing block is 59. Right, Uh, okay. So that makes it more difficult, obvious. Right. And these these are also not the final. Yes, uh, <laughs> this is just the totals. latest update. Yeah. And what's important to know is that of all the countries in the world, one of the most convoluted election systems <laughs> is in Israel. Yes. And what happens is, being that it's all a proportional, you know, thing. So proportional representation. Proportional representation. So that you take the total number of voters and divide it by 120, then you set that as the standard of this is how you measure one Knesset seat. But now when you do that, there's going to be leftovers. There's always going to, it's not going to be exactly divisible by that. So then what happens to those votes? So there's several things. One is two parties can get together and have an agreement. And then the, both the remainders of both parties get put together up to one seat. It could be up to one seat. And the larger of the two parties gets it. So there are three parties that, uh, meaning six uh, agreements, and Likud has one with Yamina. So it could go one one seat can go in one way or the other. But wait, but there's more if you call now, because there's still remainders. So what happens to those remainders? Oh, that's a whole other system. It's called the Bader Ofer Law, Hok Bader Ofer, which is so convoluted, I got to be honest, I don't totally get it, but the larger parties somehow end <laughs> up getting more votes. So this this uh, seesaw that we're going to see, we'll, we'll see it seesawing back and forth. Yeah. 
uh, 59, 60, maybe 61, maybe 58. That'll that'll keep. Uh, what, what was 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 it Likud who lost the one yeah. vote? Was yes. That? yes, yes, in the last yes. election, Likud yes. lost in the last one exit vote. Right no, in this last this exit last total. Oh, oh yeah. no, no, we're not up to that yet. Uh, okay, no, this is just the exit polls. No, but in the yes. last election, Likud lost yes. one vote due to uh, the battle for law. Right, that's right, that's right. Um, look it, it, again, this still would be a, 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 again if this exit poll holds. And we're talking about 36 seats for Likud. It would still be a big win for Netanyahu in that they are, would be the party that got the most seats. And it would be a big jump from the last election result. But again, I don't think we've counted. We know we haven't counted all the soldiers' votes and things like that. So They've only just begun to count. They've only they, just begun to count. So got like 37,000 votes or something yeah. actually counted at the last thing. It's right. Right. This was just an adjustment of right. the exit Right, votes. about four and a half right. million. So uh, votes counted. And right. they count twice. Cast. That's a new law since yeah. the last election. They count twice right and being that the high-tech superpower startup nation votes with little pieces <laughs> of paper that you put into a little envelope that you put yeah. into another little envelope that goes into a cardboard box it's gonna take quite my, my 12 year old daughter was angrily talking about that yesterday she was so embarrassed that israel embarrassing. votes with just a paper ballot although some people say that's the only way you can trust it now they're saying now oh yeah. you see we were so smart we've yeah. been doing this for all these years but now that's After our Iowa. guarantee yeah. against the hacking yeah, but yeah. they might be right yeah it's not even exactly. a paper ballot it's a little it's, it's, it's an envelope it's yeah. like a little slip of paper like you know, two yeah. two uh, two inches by four inches. Well, it's very environmentally with friendly. An acronym, with an with acronym, an, on right? It. With a, with letters that represent right. the party. Right. We're we're coming up close to the six p.m. hour again. I want to get the headlines in just briefly again. Looks like a big win for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu in the Israel national elections. They really only started to count the real votes just now. But all the exit polls showing a big jump in support for Likud compared to the last election and even compared to the one in April where they came out ahead as well. So this would possibly end the logjam, possibly end the deadlock in Israeli politics. But again, we've got to get those final numbers before we go there. But for now, and from based on not only exit polls, but the atmosphere, the feeling in the state of Israel right now is that this has been a win for Likud and the right wing bloc. In Israel, and just tangentially, it does look like the U.S. stock market cheered some of this, at least towards that last hour when it was already having a nice rally. But that rally accelerated when this news came through. We had a 1,200 point gain in the Dow, and I'm waiting for for Donald Trump to to tweet the congratulatory tweet to Benjamin Netanyahu. It hasn't happened yet. I think he's waiting for some real results. Netanyahu hasn't spoken yet either. That's right. And welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network's live coverage of Israeli national election results. I'm Jake Novak, your host, here at the Nachum Siegel headquarters, studios, whatever we want to call them. They're both headquarters. headquarters. I'm going to say headquarters because it's election night, and that's you have to make it sound like we're 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 in battle stations election here. Election Central. Election Central. This is, this is the world right. headquarters. Worldwide headquarters. Election Central. For the Nachum Siegel Network, where we have been following these results, and really it's been mostly exit poll results, but there's been other evidence we've been getting from the state of Israel all afternoon, and it's been nighttime, of course, Israel time, showing that this is going to be a big night for Likud, for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the right-wing bloc, and what seems to be a victory for that group right now, and that is what people have been saying. Mayor Weingarten. I, I, I want to interrupt yeah. the political angle for, yes. for one second and just interject uh, a thought. The elections in Israel by law are always on Tuesday. Okay. And they take place 90 days at least after 
the Knesset dis- disbands itself. Mm-hmm. The elections based on that were supposed to be next Tuesday. Okay. But the problem is that next Tuesday is Purim. Purim. That's right. So they'd now all, the question— They'd all be drunk. <laughs> well, I, I thought, actually, that wasn't appropriate. They yeah, yeah. The elections <laughs> at this point in history. But now the question is, okay, they moved it up a week. Why isn't it tomorrow, Tuesday of this week? Why mm. is it on Monday? Okay. And here's another, and this to me is so indicative of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. Tomorrow is Zion Adar. Zion Adar in our heritage is the birthday and the death day of Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay. And it is a day that, for example, if, you're, if there's a, a burial society in your synagogue, they have a special event on this day because Moshe, Moses, his place of burial is unknown. In Israel, tomorrow, Zion Adar, is the day to commemorate the unknown soldier. Ah. Soldiers that have no burial place, no, no grave that a parent can go to. And that wouldn't have been appropriate. So they made it on Monday. <laughs> and that says so much. Purim, we move it. Zion Adar, Moshe Rabbeinu, unknown soldier. It, it just says so much to me about it. It's a Jewish state. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we, there's, there's a feeling of frustration about elections and the dirtiness of politics and stuff, but, and yet they found a way to add something kadosh, something holy into this process, as Mayor Weingarten has just told us. Joining us on the phone right now, it feels like a long time ago that we talked to you. It was only three hours ago, Rabbi Yotav Eliach, the author of the very important book, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel. Well, now we have something more to talk about. We have what appears to be... Exit polls and, uh, and and more important, more reliable numbers as well, showing that this is going to be a night, a pretty good night, if not a very good night for Likud and for Prime Minister Netanyahu. So, so Yota, first I have to ask you, what's your what's your reaction to some of these numbers and to what looks to be strong results for Likud? I um, I'm I'm not surprised. I think um, as the night goes on, and we're not going to be dealing with exit polls, but with real numbers, I think he may break 60 and may hit 61. Uh, I think we also have to remember that the Army's votes only come in 24 hours later, and the Army's votes tend to be right of center. So it either Likud or some other parties right of center, in particular Yamina, uh, I don't think the Haredi parties would gain much from, from the Army vote, but I think Likud and or Yamina could pick up a seat. So I think he's going to cross the 61 threshold. I don't think... The reason I'm not surprised is because of the events of the last few weeks have made it clear that Israel does need a, a, a strong captain at the helm and needs a government that understands that they're in the Middle East and not in uh, Western Europe, and that Israel's neighbors are not Scandinavian countries, but is Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Hamas, etc. And I think all of that rever- you know, re- reverberated among Israelis. And I also think, you know, when... The when Benny when Benny Gantz and Blue and White began to kind of poke fun and and at at Likud at BB etc. thinking that they would stir up their own voters, what they did is they stirred up a hornet's nest. And I think when they break down the fact that it went up to seventy one percent, I think the the. The people who benefited the most was the right wing block. I think more people who voted right wing 
went out to vote than did uh, in the last election. You know, you mentioned something about what uh, the, the denigrating of Likud and, and going after Netanyahu, but I think there was some carryover to also Likud voters. And it's one of the things that I have seen, a, a rule that's been broken many, many times in recent years, which you never used to see broken. Now, I know you had the very famous incident, of the Amcha incident in the 1981 election, which everyone apparently seems to forget these lessons about you, you can say what you want about someone else's candidate to, within, within reason. But when you start to denigrate the other side's voters, as Hillary Clinton did in this country with the deplorables comment, which is a real watershed moment in American politics, and as we're seeing again now with Trump voters being called, uh, Pete Buttigieg just dropped out of the race, but he did mention basically saying they were right, they were white supremacists or suborning white white supremacy. It's one of those lessons that you've got to learn. I, I don't understand why more politicians don't learn this lesson from both Israeli and American politics. You can say what you want about your opponent, in, in the actual politician, but you go after the other side's voters, and you are really in trouble. Is there is that a sign of desperation as a, as opposed to just like a bad move? I think it's well. I think it's a combination of a few things, and I think that you brought up the American, you know, uh, political situation. I tell you what, I think is similar. I think it's not a secret that in the Western world, the people who consider themselves progressive or on the left also consider themselves smarter and also consider themselves more civilized, and also consider themselves more thoughtful, caring, etc. So I think they literally believe that voters who, quote, are conservative or to the right, tend to be not as smart, not as sophisticated, not as compassionate, etc. So I, I, I truly believe these are their feelings and thoughts. And I think in their minds, when they, when they say these things, whether it's to the American electorate or to the Israeli electorate, in their own little world, because I believe to a great extent they do live in an echo chamber, and I think the media in both countries helps them, they really believe, come on, people. I mean, really, you know, those of you who are smart, those of you who are sophisticated, those of you who truly understand, those of you who really have a grasp on reality, certainly you know that you can't vote for these people. I think they honestly believe that. Besides it being a bad move, besides it not being strategically smart, I think it comes from a deeply held belief that they, they, they hold to the point that they can't stop themselves from talking or thinking that way. All right. You know, uh, we've also talked a little bit about the Bernie Sanders factor uh, in between your first appearance with us three hours ago and now. I've had a number of guests say that the comments that Bernie Sanders made, not that there was anything different from what he said for years. I mean, this is nothing new from Bernie Sanders. He is objectively, no. there's no disputing the fact that this is the most anti-Israel major party candidate for president in the history of this country, or at least since the establishment of the state of Israel. And maybe Franklin Pierce would have been worse if, Israel were around, if the state of Israel were around back then. But honestly, we are at this point right now. Do you think that he his comments woke some Israelis up to the fact that there may be a hostile White House one day, and you got to vote for Netanyahu if that's the case. I'm not sure that Israelis are thinking along those terms when it comes to why they're voting for Likud. I think, I think as I mentioned a little bit you know, in, in the beginning of our conversation, I think it's more about the neighborhood. I, th- I think it's more about sovereignty in Area C, uh, starting with the Jordan River Valley and where you know, the, the large settlement blocks are. It's about uh, the shelling from, from Hamas uh, and the, the potential war with, with Hezbollah. What's going on in Syria every day with the Israeli Air Force? What's going on with Iran? 
I think that's what concerned Israelis the most, I think, and what put them over the top. The fact that Bernie Sanders is a, an anti-Israel candidate, I, I personally don't think that played so much in the minds of Israelis who went to vote in Likud or Yamina, and certainly those who went in to vote for Haredi parties. Um, Yotav Eliach, author of the book Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel, um, one more update. So now we said that there's going to be a fluid situation. So we started the hour with one of the new exit polls coming out and d- downgrading the Likud's projected number of seats from 37 to 36. But now we have one from Channel 12 putting them back at 37. So we told you this was going to seesaw. And, of course, Yotav Eliach, you mentioned the military vote coming in that will be tomorrow because it's 24 hours later, will likely uh, increase uh, Likud or maybe Yamina, one of, those, one of the more right-wing parties' numbers. And so that will probably... Uh, hold if we hold at this position but again we're just getting real results real vote counting results now um another point so you mentioned area c and you mentioned the annexation issue and one of the things i spoke to people like danny ayalon and a few other israeli diplomats and politicians ever in the days after the trump peace plan was finally released and they agreed with this the scenario that i that i seemed to i saw very clearly and i wonder if you agree with it as well or if you see it slightly differently in that as soon as Benny Gantz started talking about annexation and promising some of the similar things that, that Netanyahu was promising, that was a trigger for the Trump administration to finally release the plan because they could no longer be accused of getting in the way of a contentious issue in Israel. If both the major parties were in favor of those same results in the West Bank, then how can they be, you know, how could they be interfering? But the unintended consequence was that Benny Gantz now had to make a decision about standing with Trump. Benny Gantz wasn't expecting to have to do that. He wasn't expecting the peace plan to come out from this. And it was a final nail in the coffin for those Israelis who might be a little sick of Netanyahu, but they see that Gantz is a novice. Do you see it the same way, Yotav Elia? Um, I see uh, one difference. I don't recall Gantz saying publicly that he'd be willing to uh, add uh, the large settlement blocks to Israel and annex them. He spoke exclusively, as far as I remember, about the Jordan River Valley. I don't think his voters or his, you know, his constituents as a whole would have been comfortable with, because he kept saying about, we still have to think about negotiating with the other side, and we can't take too many unilateral steps. So I think he was talking about the Jordan River Valley. Okay. I, the reason I think Trump, I think Trump released it, among other things. First of all, I think there was some pressure from the Arab world to release it, believe it or not. That's partially what I believe. Number two, I do think it was to help Bibi, because by releasing that plan, it clearly sharpened the differences between the two candidates, because Gantz cannot and could not get up and say, yes, if elected, not only will I annex, or the, the proper word is to extend Israeli sovereignty to the Jordan River Valley, but I will start by doing it to the four large settlement blocks. He can't say that. He won't be able to say that. So that allowed there to be a sharpen difference in the mind of voters. The minute that plan came out, I think Gantz and Bibi, suddenly it wasn't twiddly-dee and twiddly-dum. <laughs> suddenly it was a man, yeah, it's clear, this is what we're going to do, this is what we have to do. The other guy, well, it's not so clear he's comfortable with making Malad Dumim right away the state of Israel, and Gushitian part of Israel, and Ariel, and the Modi'in, Reut Maccabim area. Not so fast. That's not Benny Gantz. And now you had a clear distinction between the two. I think. I'd look at it slightly different. Do you think now, 
first of all, we haven't we have yet to see the congratulatory tweet from from Donald Trump, from President Trump, and I think even he is being a little bit cautious because, and that's not a bad move when you consider these things move, move in certain directions. But right. what what do you think this says to a Trump administration in the United States that they're getting this kind of result? Obviously, Trump feels close to Netanyahu, and by the and and and, and the feeling is mutual. I mean, the video that Netanyahu put out on his own feed. The day after Donald Trump was elected is probably the most euphoric I've ever seen an Israeli politician in public, and it was really hard for him to contain himself. But this has to, this must seem to Trump and the administration as some kind of a go forward green light on that on the peace process. And I think, as as you and I would both, we've talked about this before, the the real triumph of this plan so far is it's as you just mentioned, sort of alluded to a little bit, is that. Forget about the Palestinians' acceptance or rejection of that. That was a given that they would reject it. But other Arab countries either supporting the peace plan or not slamming it, uh, uh, it right away, that's the real triumph here. So, so what does Trump do next now if these results stay the same? Well, and I, I, my read is that uh, Ambassador Freeman has been hinting uh, um, all along the last few weeks, wait till after the elections, uh, kind of, if you can form a right-of-center government. At that point, if you start by, you know, uh, annexing or uh, establishing or extending Israeli sovereignty to the Jordan River Valley, and then later starting off with the large settlement blocks, you will have full United States backing. And when the whole world comes down at you in the United Nations, don't worry, we'll have you back. So I think... Uh, the hint, at least that's how I read his statements. He didn't say it point blank, but that's how I read in between the lines. So I think now, sometime over the next few weeks, remember he has to form a government. And right. once the government is formed, then and only then, that may take 30, 60 days, even with a majority. And I'll tell you why I think it may take longer than expected. I have a feeling that because there are going to be some really big decisions that Israel is going to make and has to make, whether it's about sovereignty in Area C, whether it's about the threats that Bennett has been making about what needs to be done to Hamas and their leadership and Islamic Jihad in, Hamas, in, uh, in Gaza, and what's going to be needed to be done in Syria, both to the Iranians, to Hezbollah, etc., I think he's looking for more than 61 seats. Where will he get more than 61 seats? Well, <clears throat> this is what I believe. If you look at blue and white, blue and white is not a political party. It's, ba- it's basically, it's basically Yeshatid with a whole bunch of other people who came together who said, ABB, anybody but BB. Right. But in reality, when you look at the, at the labor, at, excuse me, at the blue and white list, there's anywhere between four and eight people there, men and women, who ideologically and things that they've said and written when it comes to security matters in particular and their views on Israel as a, as a national entity and security-wise are much closer to BB and to people even like Bennett than they are to people in blue and white. And I can see, since blue and white is not a real party with a history, okay, Yeshatid will stay Yeshatid. But I think Bibi will be able to bring over three, four, five, six, maybe seven, maybe eight members of Knesset who are technically now called blue and white to say, we want you to be part of the government. Because I think it would be better for Israel, for the Israeli population, for, uh, for Israel's allies like the United States. Well, we're not dealing with a razor-slim majority. We're dealing with a government that has 67, 68 seats. 
And that's without Lieberman. Everything I'm saying is without Lieberman. Right. And Lieberman is the type of person that say, you know what? I've lost all power at this point. I might as well join on some level so I can have some say in the future decisions made. So I think it's going to take 60 days or so if they were to form a coalition, and they're going to try to pick off three, four, five, six, seven members of blue and white and to have a large government, and then that government will be able to take some serious steps. Again, you're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network, our live coverage of the Israel national election results. What is looking like a clear victory for Likud, not a automatic coalition number. It looks like maybe 60, potentially 61, but as Yotav Eliach has just been telling us, He's going to, Netanyahu, if these results hold, will likely try to pick off some members of Blue and White who are basically Likud in their policy beliefs and things like that to, after all these elections, say, listen, we need to have some more unity and we have to have some more numbers. If, Yotav Eliach, if that does happen, if there are some members of Blue and White who go over into a coalition into, with Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu, do you think that Avigdor Lieberman would be able to say, well, I said I wanted to join a national unity government, and even though the whole blue and white party didn't join, enough of them did, so now uh, I can join in with, with such a, a, a group? Do you think that, that would, he would try to push that kind of uh, ex- explanation through? Nothing, uh, nothing would surprise me about what he would do. At the end of the day, I don't think he likes being left out. And if, if, if Bibi's able to put together a coalition anywhere from 61 to 67 or 68 without him, and then major steps are going to be taken, and they could pass bills through the Knesset, whether it's economic, educational, related to the draft and Haredim, as we spoke about earlier, related to uh, you know uh, uh, establishing Israeli sovereignty in area seas, what's going to happen with Hamas, and he's just watching in the opposition. I think that's not what the man's about. The man is not about sitting in the opposition. That's not who he is. I think he'd want to find a way in. The problem is they don't really need him anymore. And what is he, he, he has no demands that anybody has to listen to. So I'm not quite sure what he has to offer other than, wow, we now have a coalition above 70. And that sounds better than in the 60s. That's true. But what is that worth? He's not going to get the, minist- the ministerial positions that he wants. I'm not sure, you know, what he has to offer, especially after the things he said about Bibi and things he said about Bennett, but in Israeli politics, as in all Western politics, you know, that all goes out the window. I'm just not sure what his leverage is. Would he want to try to be in? Yeah, I think he wants to be part of it. And I, and I think that, again, if, if there is some kind of a pickoff of these blue and white members... Uh, he'll have uh, you know plausible deniability that he broke <laughs> that he broke any one of his that any one of his promises I think but again you have to, I, this is all in the context of these last three elections very much being triggered by his decision not to join into any group I mean he just won't do it and that has been one of the biggest reasons if not the the biggest reason for all these elections you have to, I want to ask you one last question and that is. Uh, from the point of view of the American Jewish community from the from the pro Israel Jewish community. As we as we look at these elections uh, and we look at the future here, what are some of the things that they should know that maybe even the Israel? Listen, we know the Israeli news media is not representative of, of the public at large in Israel, but even in some aspects, some parts of that Israeli news media that are a little bit more representative, what are some of the things that supporters of Israel who are watching these election results should know moving forward over the next few days, besides what you just said about what the forming of the coalition, what should they know is really the, a, bur- a burning thing they should be paying attention to? You're saying the American Jewish pro-Israel community? Yes, yes. 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm repeating myself. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but the number one priority is for Israel is not right now establishing, you know, bridges to parts of the American Jewish community that are not with Israel. I don't think that's a top priority for, for, for this government or for this coalition. The top priorities are going to be the peace plan, meaning will, will they establish sovereignty, starting with the Jordan River Valley, then moving to the settlement blocks, and then eventually all of Area C. Finally, because I've been watching a lot of Israeli TV today as well, they have to do something about Gaza. Uh, it is an it is an unlivable situation. It's been unlivable for I've been to Sterot over fifteen, sixteen times. Every time I'm there, I leave angry that these are basically second class citizens. Right. Something is going to have to be done to end this once and for all. So that's going to be a very big decision that this government's going to have to have to make. What's going to be with Iran? Whether the you know it's going to be directly at Iran or all their proxies, these are big decisions Israel has to make. Then it's the budgetary question. Israel's been really without a budget now for over a year. They have to sit down and make serious decisions about the budget. Then there's going to be the question of religion and state. Then there's going to be the question of Haredim. Then there's going to be the question about uh, the educational system. These are all burning issues, you know, that for a sovereign Jewish state that has one international or or in Israel's case, it's more security issues, than have domestic issues. So that's what I think they're going to be focused on. They're not going to be focused on, well, what do we do with the alienated American youth and those that like Peter Beinart and American Jews? I don't think that's on the radar. That's not what this government's main priority is going to be. The main priority is things that have to do with the sovereign state of Israel that American supporters clearly should be able to understand and recognize that. Well, Yotav Eliach, the author of Judaism, Zionism, the land of Israel, making the very important point that existential discussions about whether Israel should be supported or not uh, are something that we have the luxury of ha- uh, that kind of discussion that people have the luxury of having here in the United States. But Israel is a real country with real domestic issues, real questions, lots of positives and lots of negatives, and they and they don't really they're not really interested in that intellectual discussion when real decisions have to be made. Thank you so much for joining us twice here. Tonight on our special coverage of the election uh, of Israel election here on the Nachum Siegel Network, Yotav Eliyahu. Thank, thank you so much for having me on. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank. Bye bye. So again, at six twenty three U.S. Eastern East, Eastern Time, we are still looking at what looks like a big victory night for the Likud. The question is, of course, now will it be enough of a number to make an easy path towards a coalition? As Yotav Eliyahu was just talking about, will there be? A strong argument that Netanyahu can make to certain members of the blue and white uh, people who get onto the who got elected from their list and say, "Hey, you should join." And that those are the two big questions moving on after uh, tonight's results, since you know finally get counted. Mayor Weingarten, you have something to add? Blue and white, I believe, as one of our uh, guests um, said before, will disintegrate. Yeah, as Yotav mentioned, it's not it's not a party. That's right. It's an amalgam of you know held together with gum or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, Yair Lapid, he has a party. What will happen to him in the next election? I don't know. He may ultimately get down very small numbers and disappear. But as a party, I believe that blue and white will disappear. And a party like that has nothing to do in opposition. They weren't sure what they would do in government. So, so they surely have no idea of what they're going to do sitting in the opposition other than get frustrated and angry and there's no purpose to it so i just think 
I don't think they'll. Some, I think Netanyahu will be able to pluck off some members. I mean, but, also, can you see Benny Gantz after being the the head of the yeah, IDF Benny, sitting and sitting for hours upon right. hours in the and Knesset? doing the really gray work of lawmaking, and same for Ashkenazi. And same for Bogialon, all these former chiefs of staff who made up this uh, this ticket. And you do have Yoaz Hendel and Gid- and Hauser, Gidon Hauser, and others who were part of the Likud, who will you know slowly make their way. It won't be right away. I don't think it, it's going to be no. But what you're going to what, gonna what do. you're going to probably hear right. This is this is Netanyahu's last rodeo. Mm-hmm. He's not going to run again. So after a short period of time, the, what's really going to happen is there's going to be intramural fighting within Likud as to who is the successor. And the question is how far can Netanyahu push this debate away from now? Well, you know, they had a happen. primary. Oh, I know. but I was, and, and it was shellacking. But, but Netanyahu, this is his last hurrah. No one thinks he's going to run again in you know, four or five years. In four or five years, no. Right. So that means everyone's now going to be lining up. We do, they don't know when Netanyahu will step down. Yeah, they're already, yeah, they're already lining up. Israel Katz and Tachy Anegbi and Erdan and all these guys. Exactly. Right? And so they're always, in politics, there's always going to be a fight. The fight now is going to be intramural within Likud because, as you're exactly right, there isn't really an opposition party that has any real power i mean if you think about it the largest party that has power outside of likud because i agree blue and white's going to blow up is the joint list yes and and that you know what is something we haven't really spoken no, about no the arab list. and i think it's important to speak about it. and i was monitoring the whole time israeli television until now channel 12 and they had uh, at one point uh, this night lucy arish who's uh well-known Arab uh, journalist, television uh, personality, who was very strong in attacking the the um, Jewish electorate, if you will, right. and especially the Likud, because one of the points that Netanyahu kept making was Benny Gantz can't do anything because of the numbers without the support of the Arab uh, party, and you don't want him to be tethered to the Arab party. Now, most people in Israel would say, I don't want a coalition. I don't want a prime minister who was going to have to make a decision about bombing in Aza, who who's going to look behind him to not going to be a member of his coalition. It'll be somebody, uh, the party backing him from behind by mm-hmm. abstention and so forth, looking back and seeing the people saying, "Oh no, 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 no! You can't, you can't bomb in Gaza." They say it openly. Bombing in Gaza is terrorism. Yeah. Right. So. What is going to? This is something that we all shy away from talking about. But this is the the the, the Arab Joint Party grows and grows. Is now going to be the third largest party in the Israeli Parliament. It's something that that the Jewish state is going to have to deal with. Well, here's something that we can debunk in the next uh, couple of minutes before we're rejoined by Tal Heinrich uh, from Washington. Is what Mayor Weingarten was just talking about, that scenario, this is what the left in both Israel and especially the United States glom onto when they make what I believe is a scurrilous, unfair accusation that Netanyahu and Likud are racist. One of the things that they forget and conveniently leave out when they discuss this pushback against the Arab parties and their influence 
that Netanyahu and others make is that the members, the, the, it sounds ridiculous, but these people who are elected to the Israel, Israeli Knesset from the Arab parties are not supporters of the right of Israel to exist. Some now, of them. Some, but, yeah, some, one not, faction not all. within yeah. the four factions. But it, it, yeah. it, it's almost, I mean, you almost wish they would do as, 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 uh, as Sinn Féin does in the British Parliament. Yeah. They don't sit. Yeah. They just don't. They well, get elected they, and they don't empty sit. Office, they, yeah. they oftentimes get up and walk out. No, but I mean, but 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 if you if you take a look at the numbers in the British Parliament, right. they never even go and, and yeah, they, don't, they, they never they, show they, up. They, they never show up. They, yeah, they, they right. don't even they oh, don't even do the swearing in. So the so out of the out of out of the six thirty five, it really is like six twenty. See, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work for yeah. one reason. <laughs> they want finally, and this has been a very long time in coming, but now it's actually coming to fore. They want their representatives to bring home the bacon. Yeah. They want their representatives to right. be... They don't want their representatives to go and talk about the Palestinian Arabs or whatever it is. They're not interested in that. They right. want to have... They live in Israel. They're part of Israeli society. They're voting. They're going to universities. They're doctors in the hospitals. They're, they're part of Israeli fabric. So they want their representatives to do something other than say, oh, I'm supporting this terrorist from Hamas. And the... the the leadership, part of the leadership, is not there yet, but the people are speaking, and 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 they're speaking stronger and stronger as the next generation is moving up mm-hmm. and is accepting the notion of Israel as a sovereign entity, as just a fact of life. And I think that with what's going on in the Gulf states and with Saudi Arabia, with with Iran now becoming the only de facto financial supporter of the Palestinian terrorist movement, whether we're talking about Hamas or Islamic Jihad or all those Qatar kinds of... Or, you know, and, and, and Fatah through Qatar, which, again, dances at all weddings. Sometimes Qatar is... Right. Yeah, they're trying to play a lot of different roles, but they've been primarily Iran's proxy in a lot of things lately. The fact is that the, the hope is that some of these Israeli Arabs growing up now will see less of a unified Arab, or you know, obviously Iran is not Arab, but a unified Muslim world egging them on towards destruction. And some of these people, especially Saudi Arabia and their client states saying, get involved in more political stuff and more economic reality. And you also wonder as to whether or not the Arab Christians and the Druze start pulling out, right? As, as you're starting to see the destruction of Christianity in the Arab world as a decimation of what it was, at some point you wonder as to whether the Arab Christians are sort of saying, why are we sticking the, the Arab yeah. Christians aren't really I don't think they're voting for the Arab parties I'm not sure but they're they're very few left of yeah. Arab Christians they're being chased out Destroyed. Yeah well they're, I mean, gone but, but they're gone in Gaza they're gone in Gaza They're not in Gaza but I'm, I'm saying within not Israel not in Bethlehem so, but yeah. within Israel Oh within Israel I'm talking yeah. within proper, Israel yeah. within yeah. Israel proper as to whether or not the Arab Christians within Israel are starting right. to say maybe we've got to look away from the the notion of us being Arab because us being Arab deals with Arab Muslims, and they haven't yeah, been they, good they for hate, us. They hate the Arab yeah, Muslims. Well, we can't right. hold and our the breath Arab on Muslims that. hate the Arab Christians. Right. I mean, if after the wars in Lebanon, they didn't do it then, I don't know if they'll do it now. I, I, I agree with you. From all standpoints of logic and history, Arab Christians should have been more supportive of Israel a long time ago, and their potential for success there a long time ago. But... In general, it's it's I still think they're afraid. They're still not they're there. Afraid. Yeah, I mean, I think listen, easy for Ultimately, me to say they're afraid. Yeah, easy for me to say they are not. I, I don't have a target on my back if I if I say certain things. We're rejoined now by Tal Heinrich from Washington D.C. and Tal, 
still not much of a change. We're, we're still seeing uh, you know a good night for Benjamin Netanyahu. There hasn't been any big headline change as far as what these election results seem like. But in the time that since we spoke to you last, we've talked a little bit more about what Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to have to do going forward. Obviously, he's going to have to form a coalition. But what do you think, Tal Heinrich, are his chances for creating more than just a 61-seat coalition? Can he go to blue and white now and say, some of those members who used to be Likud especially, and say, look, we've got a lot of decisions to make. Let's join in and make a stronger coalition. What do you think about that? I think the option of unity is still on the table. Of course, without Lieberman being a part of it, because Lieberman has said it time and again, and he also said it about 30 or 40 minutes ago, that he will not sit with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Haredim in uh, the same government. Um, he said before the, the vote that he will not support uh, or recommend, rather, uh, Prime Minister Be- Benjamin Netanyahu for the premiership when he talks to uh, President Ruben Rivlin. Um, I can tell you, Jake, because I, I'm here at AFAC, but I was trying to follow uh, and listen to what's happening in Israeli media studios in Jerusalem, and I can tell you that the word unity has been brought time and again because of the latest uh, exit polls uh, results that we've been seeing. Um, the real results are starting to trickle in, but it's still a very preliminary stage right now. So uh, we know nothing at this point because the difference between 59 and 60 and 61 mandates uh, to the right-wing bloc is huge. The, 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 the story could be, you know, a, a different story. If we're talking about 59 votes, uh, rather seats for the right-wing bloc in Israel, then the word unity might still be relevant. And who knows? You know what? Here at APAC, I don't know if you saw Netanyahu's televised um, via a satellite uh, yeah. speech uh, to the crowd, and he said that he believes, and he said it about the Palestinians, of course, in uh, peace through strength and pride. Uh, let's see him maybe doing it with Benny Gantz, if his boss really has 59. Let's make peace with blue and white through strength and pride. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's about coming from a position of strength. If, and I think that that's been achieved, again, unless we see some really... Unless all of these exit polls were off more than they usually are, which would be saying something. But that would be the point, that Netanyahu can make this argument and the right in general can make this argument like, look, in two out of these three elections, uh, Likud has come out with the most seats. In all three of these elections, the right-wing bloc, even though we couldn't form a coalition, came out with more seats than what would consider to be a left-wing or center-left bloc. This is now, that's it. You know, we, we've, we've got this, we have our answer, even though... It's, it's, it's relatively close. It, we've seen this trend over and over again that the country wants a center-right government, and that's, that's it. It's over now for, for an idea of a center-left government. So now and, from that position of strength. he will be able to leave Liberman out yeah. of such a government, and then he gets his bittersweet, you know, sort of revenge. That's right. Um, so the question now to you and, and to others who've been watching in Israel, what can be one of those issues? I mean, if you're, if you're a blue and white supporter— or if you're Benny Gantz, what can be the thing that they can say now? When when there was some problem, when, when there was more rocket fire and things starting to get really, really bad, I mean, worse than I'm, I'm talking about this latest round. I mean, a few months ago, even before this last latest round, you heard uh, Benny Gantz starting to make some points. He was very supportive of the government at the time when there was a potential of some kind of ground assault going into, into Gaza. Other than that, is there an argument that that Gantz can make to sort of as a plausible deniability, plausible excuse that he can say, "Look, this is what's happened, and now we have to sort of join in"? Is it is it Iran or maybe the coronavirus decimating the leadership of Iran? Could that be an issue that he uses as an excuse to say, "Time for a unity government"? 
Probably, but unity is really the, the key word. This is uh, what Gantz needs to say. And, you know, in, in the case of Benny Gantz, it's, it's not only about what he says, it's also about how he says it, you know, because uh, on Israeli media, on Israeli social media as well, we've seen all these video excerpts of him, you know, uh, uh, misusing words and, and stuttering. And he has to come up with a very strong message, first and foremost for his supporters. They're waiting to hear something from him, and it has to be something very solid, and he has to show that he has a way and he's going to lead the blue and white party, and it's not going to dissolve. Uh, remember, it's, it's, a, it's a, a box, actually. It's, it's, it's formed out of, you know, three, three four different uh, parties. Um, and and he, he needs to convey a certain message to make, to make this promise to his supporters that, uh, what happened to the Zionist Union after the 2015 election is not going to, you know, happen again, and that there will not be a seek-leave-me moment, if we remember, you know, uh, with Bougie Herzog, um, right. and that they will not dissolve. And this is what the supporters want to hear. So first, it's unity um, within, you know, the, the nation, and the second tier of message should be unity within the party. I believe. Uh, if I were a media advisor right now, not a position I would like to be <laughs> at, but this would have been my, my punchline. Tal, let's, let's talk on a personal level right now because you are a Sabra and we know that that nickname, that, that moniker, that, that title comes from the understanding, the, 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 the stereotype that Israelis are tough on the outside and sweet on the inside. Uh, I, I, you know, listen, I, I have to ask you as a Sabra, did we learn something from these last three elections, but especially tonight, something that I have made the point many, many times? And maybe did we learn something that even in Israel, you have to be an engaging personality. You have to connect with people. You can have all the policies that people like, and I understand that the policies that the Likud is pushing have been generally more popular than, than anyone else's, but did Benjamin Netanyahu prove tonight that even in a state like Israel, you've got to be a good talker, you have to be able to engage with people because you just mentioned the stumbling that Benny Gantz did. That, you know, sabra or no sabra, you've got to be able to communicate clearly and in some way engage with people. Did, did, did that myth about Israelis get, get debunked tonight? You have to be able to be articulate and convey a message and communicate clearly, as you say, but uh, not once Benjamin Netanyahu has been accused that he is very good at communicating with his people around election time. You know, he's not uh, very, I mean, he, he's been giving uh, many interviews to uh, American media. He likes to speak on world stages, but he hasn't been very accommodative to, when it comes to Israeli media. He hasn't been very generous in, in giving interviews to Israeli media, and we, we usually see him uh, walking around, you know, uh, the Machane Yehuda market or Hakalmez, uh, the, the very, very famous Tel Aviv uh, market, um, around election time. So maybe I think this is... Uh, this entire year, Jake, has been a real wake-up call for Prime Minister Benjamin and Netanyahu, maybe to, to go back to, to the basics. Maybe he has forgotten a bit about what you're describing throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, there are, there's going to be a hostile news media in the United States and in Israel if you're a right-wing, in case of the United States, a Republican candidate or a right-wing candidate in Israel. You know that's going to be the case. Now, there are ways to deal with that. Um, you can go to the few sources like Israel Hayom where you're going to get maybe more favorable coverage, but they, you know, but that's, that's only one avenue. You can also try to play the game 
in a way that's that's somewhat engaging. I, I I've learned from some very very good interviewers in the past who were interviewing someone who they were wanted to have a debate with that they made sure that they made it clear that they weren't trying to go after them personally. That they wanted to make the point. That they use terms like, I mean, these are terms they teach you in, in some of these public relations classes where you say something like, before you refute them and maybe tear their point to shreds, you start by saying, I understand where you're coming from and I can see why you would think that. It's not dumb or uneducated to believe that, but it's still you know, incorrect because I want to make, a, make it clear to you why. I mean, just to show that you sort of real, acknowledge their, if you want to use Israeli terms, acknowledge their right to exist on that interview stage. And I wonder if maybe, is that something that you think Netanyahu might learn in the, next, in the next coming months, or he already learned from this last election, that he has to do a little bit, he's going to have to endure some, a little bit more of this and find a way to, to charm that, that public one, one more time. Well, I, I'll use, I'm going to use your technique, and I say, um, Jake, I understand where you're coming from, and I understand what you're saying, <laughs> but I think that it might be too late for Benjamin Netanyahu mm-hmm. because the hostilities toward, I, I don't think something, you know, can mend um, the, 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 the hostility and, and, and paganism against them, you know, um, surrounding him, especially with, with the indictment in the upcoming trial. Mm-hmm. I, it might be too late for this for him, but the same message that you're now uh, describing could be implemented and should be embraced maybe by the Israeli left who suffered defeats uh, time and again over the last decade. They should be able to do what you're saying right. uh, and not outright, you know, just uh, uh, object any, any kind of right-wing idea. Tal Heinrich, thank you so much for joining us. You joined us twice tonight from, from Washington, D.C. in the APEC Policy Conference. So great to get your insights, and you were you were right from the beginning on some of the I- instincts you had about the results here and the re- reasons for them. So, th- so thank you again for joining us on the Nachum Siegel Network. It's great to be on this network, Jake. Thank you. Uh, it's six forty three Eastern Time, New York Time, and in Israel it is after one thirty. And Mayor uh, Ferdig has something to tell oh, us. For what it's worth, uh, Gantz has conceded. Oh wow, he's given really? a speech. Uh, English translation provided by Gil Hoffman at the Jerusalem Post. He said, we faced the lowest campaign in the history of Israel. We endured many smears. (laughs) And then he said, Israel needs to heal. It needs unity. It needs reconciliation and leadership. And we will continue to offer it to the public. But Benny Gantz has actually conceded the Israeli election. Well, that's important uh, headline there, Mayor Ferdig. And I think that, again, that's something that he could walk back tomorrow. That's something that he didn't say, hey, let's join into a coalition. He, He hasn't tied his hands. But, you know, that is a – I would consider that to be a conciliatory, even though he decided he had to dig in and say this was the, the, the dirtiest campaign in, in Israeli history, which is – which when everyone, and when, whenever anyone in either is the United States, this is the blankest blank in election history, political history, you always know that they're wrong. It's just that they don't know enough about history because it's very hard to, to judge that. But that's an interesting point. Mayor. So Gil Hoffman uh, further quotes Gantz in his speech. Yeah. Uh, Hoffman is, wrote the lead story in the Jerusalem Post on the election result. Yeah. And he said, in what is turning out to not be to be not much of a concession speech, <laughs> uh, he quotes him as saying, we need to raise our heads and wait for the final results, oh, okay. because they could end up being no different than the race in April when we remain strong and united. Yeah. All right. So, uh, again, I mean, just just dancing on that tightrope. Uh, right. But but, uh, you know, but I'm going to take some of the positives out of that. You know, look, there. I, I often talk about the state of current uh, politics, both mostly in the United States. And I like to point to two examples of when things were a little bit better in both Israel and also I would consider even in Great Britain. Cases where we've actually seen some level of contrition from politicians in the past that we would never see today. 
Now, Golda Meir never came out and said, oh, yeah, Yom Kippur War was my fault. Sorry. She never said that. And I don't think she it really was completely her fault. There were certainly there were failures on a lot of levels there. So I don't think she had to say that anyway. But she resigned. OK, I mean, she she didn't they didn't drag her out there kicking and screaming. And so did Moshe Dayan. I, I think also that there's going to be so much pressure for the president's office for yeah. um, blue and white to try to come into some sort of coalition for a unity government. Uh, the idea that, that there's that there could even be a possibility of a fourth vote. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's just so beyond beyond. Yeah, especially since the right. Has, now, now, again, we know that so we could, didn't get the most seats in the September election. They got the most seats now. It looks like. In this election and in the April election, but in all three of those elections, the same block, right, left block reality was was clear. And if you take out the Arab parties, it's really clear this is a center right people in Israel, a center right government. They should be able to form some kind of coalition. And people in blue and white, especially who are on the righter side of the blue and white party, must see the destructive nature of a fourth election. We said this about the last time, so we know that may may not learn their lesson, but I'm hoping they learn their lesson this time. I, I, I really think that, as we were talking before, there's the Blue and White is not really a party. It it, it was a, it was an anti BB uh, issue. And now that basically BB has had his last rodeo, people are gonna start wanting to be part of the Likud conversation as to who's gonna be the next leader in Likud. That you can therefore see a number of people who get picked off by uh, by Likud in order to get over the sixty one mandates that are necessary, and the, the question for Gantz is going to be: Does he want to be on the inside and maybe have some bit of power, or is he going to be an opposition politician sitting in in the Knesset doing basically nothing? You know, from his body language, Jim Nuzzo, I, I just have to think that Benny Gantz doesn't want to do this. I mean, I don't think he wanted to do it the first time. He's just not right. comfortable doing this kind of thing. And that, by the way, that doesn't speak poorly of him. You know, we do we do this in both Israel, but especially in the United States, where we think the good debater and the good talker is the is the better leader. That's not always true. Okay, it's just not always true. Some people, I know a lot of people who do a great job of speaking in public, and we know that they're criminals, so they're, who knows what else. I'm not trying to, that That to me is not a character flaw. However, it to me tells me this is not someone who's comfortable in that true political arena, that true public arena. I, I just cannot see him, even defense minister, I don't even see him as that. I just don't think that he wants to play this game much longer. He was the tall, handsome, impressive guy that they coalesced around in the blue and white, that made for a good picture on television and even sometimes gave a good speech or two. Not as much as he should have, but he certainly didn't give good live interviews and he certainly didn't look like he was having a good time. No, I think he was having a horrible time <laughs> and it came came across to the Amer- uh, to the Israeli public that he wasn't someone who really enjoyed doing what he was doing. And that, in many respects, is, is the game because you're not going to win if people think that you don't want the job. That's right. And I think that, again, in, in the world of persuasion, it's just like dating. Political persuasion is just like dating. If you're showing body language that you would rather not be on this date, that you would rather not be here, that's the least persuasive thing you can do. It's even worse than being 
saying something insulting because some people like that kind of challenge sometimes insult you know it's like what you tell your kid in grade school when the boy's being mean to the girls well maybe he likes you you know <laughs> which which is a little overused in my opinion but it's certainly a, a, a truth in, in many cases mayor so we have some updated uh, exit polling numbers okay. from israel's channel 13 as of a couple of minutes ago the gap has widened between likud and blue and white mm. uh their latest exit poll and this is yeah. not votes counted again it's an exit poll likud 37 blue and white 32 mm-hmm. so uh that has that gap has widened and there are about a quarter of a million actual votes counted so far um looking at the uh israel um israeli elections live twitter feed oh. uh, which is monitoring this and uh their results so far uh put could at 39 blue and white uh at 29 oh, okay well that will change. and and right and they're yeah, saying yeah. it still looks a little bit too early to take these numbers seriously but they say we are getting closer mayor Furtick, please re- repeat that twitter handle so our, our listeners can can that's follow uh, that israel ex i-s-r-a-e-l-x live israel lex live okay okay you get that okay so that's an important website uh twitter uh Twitter handle to follow yeah. for for some of these results. So Israel Alex E L E X live. Okay. Uh, well, no. So no. I S R A E L E X. Oh, E X live. Okay. Okay. So that is so if everyone and you can take a look at that Israel. So the the title is Israel Elections Live. If you didn't catch the way we just said it, go into your Twitter search bar and type out three separate words: Israeli elections live right. and if you do that if you want if you insist on sticking with the twitter handle which i understand it's <laughs> at at israel ex live all one word at israel ex live and then you'll start getting some of these these numbers and yes this after a quarter of a million out of looks like something like 4.2 million votes will be cast here so we're not even yeah. at um 10 yeah. percent here to go. but that's important numbers to look at uh we're, we're, we're getting into that home stretch here of our live coverage of the Israel national, national elections here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I've been hosting. I'm Jake Novak. I've been hosting for this almost four hours uh, with the incredible help of Mayor Furtick, who you've just heard from, uh, producing the program, handling the calls in the studio. Um, we, we did not get a chance live to say goodbye to Mayor Weingarten, who is also the host of the Israel Show and someone who coordinates tours to Israel, as he, as he reminded me to mention uh, not too long ago. Um, for on the Nachum Siegel Network, he does the the Israel show, but he's also a, a someone who organizes tours to Israel. And also joining us in the studio for the entire broadcast has been Jim Nuzzo, a former aide to obviously former, he's no longer with us, President H W <laughs> George H W Bush. But um, Jim Nuzzo is very much with us, and uh, he's also at the, the Colchester Group. Jim is also a medical expert, a legal expert. And, uh, and a media expert. He's had a lot of different. He, he's had a lot of different roles, and that's why it was just so invaluable to have him with us, Jim. As we get to these last eight or nine minutes of the broadcast, I wanted to ask you something again. Uh, look, tomorrow now we move on to the election season. It's always right. is always on. It's almost like you know the, the old joke about I, I I'll, I'll be with you, honey, after hockey, baseball, football, and 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 uh, and uh, basketball season are over. There's, one of those is always going. But tomorrow we have the Super Tuesday primaries. I think it's 14 states that will be in pay. Not all states. Some of them are territories. 14 different contests in total. Um, Israel is always punches above its weight as an issue in some of these elections. We really are seeing a trend in the Democratic Party to be less supportive of Israel. But I have to give credit to people like Joe Biden. Joe Biden came out pretty strongly in favor about Israel at his address to the APAC policy conference. 
Do we think that now that we've had some election results, we'll start hearing even more from the Democratic candidates, the remaining Democratic candidates about Israel and Middle East policy? I, I think it's one of the ways in which Biden is going to be able to differentiate himself from Bernie. Um, the issue of socialism and social policy is one of those in which Biden's going to have to have a little bit of, of, of play a, a soft game because the electorate in the primary is very far left when it comes to social policy. But the electorate is not anti-Semitic. And you've got Bernie, who actually, um, Mayor was just sort of gave it to me. Um, as you know, Amy Kobachar has now uh, backed out and so Minnesota is now up for grabs. It's mm. one of the 14 right. states. So well, guess who he invited in yeah, his guess, next rally? Guess who's going to be at his rally? In Minnesota. In Minnesota. One guess. <laughs> she happens to have a brother who she's married to <laughs> or has been married to. Yes, Omar is going to be at the rally for Bernie. So he's doubling down on his anti-Israel, anti-Semitic aspects. He's very proud to be Jewish, though. Yeah. Oh, yes. It, 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 it cuts him to the quick. Um, <laughs> so I think that one way, if I'm Joe Biden, it's an easy way for me to make myself look sane compared to, to Bernie Sanders, and in a way that's not going to offend the left flank of my party. Well, let me let me. However, let me let me bring up a potential doomsday or or just depressing scenario. However, what if we've even been underestimating the the, the tilt anti-Israel tilt among your typical Democratic Party primary voters? And even though it might work for him in the fundraising aspect, it might work for him from the nom, you know, getting a moniker as a moderate for Joe Biden to be more pro-Israel than Bernie Sanders. What if that, considering the, the drift of the party, what if that's a kiss of death for him in the actual primary voting? I, I'll, I'll have one other thing, which sort of says that Biden has going to have a very hard time playing the pro-Israel line, which is that he supports and always has the whole Iran compact mm. idea of Obama. So even those people on the Democratic side who says, well, Joe is with us and is on Israel. The question that's going to come up from the Trumpians is, you were for the Iran pact. That was something to which no Israeli politician of any consequence thought was anything other than a horrible idea. And so, therefore, it makes it much more difficult. If he wants Obama to support him, he can't go against the Iran pact. Because as far as Obama's concerned, that was his signature. So it, it, Joe is in a, in a hard place in which he wants to both be pro-Israel, yet at the same time keep Obama on his side. That is one of the juggling acts. And we have not talked a lot in this special election coverage here in the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, we have not talked enough about the Iran deal and how that played a role in bringing some pro-Israel voters over to President Trump's side, then candidate Trump's side during the, the primaries. If you, you remember the 2016 primaries, those Republican primaries, with all those Republican candidates, there were a lot of candidates with a very solid pro-Israel pedigree. You had Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. You had Marco Rubio, who I think within days of being elected to the Senate in 2012, I think that's when he was first elected, maybe 2010, it might have been 2010, made a trip to Israel. Uh, you had a lot of candidates there who were extremely supportive of Israel, 
Um, Jeb Bush, who was more supportive of Israel than his father had been when Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida. So, you know, look, folks, uh, the, for, the, 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 the tougher nature, the tougher stance, the sharper nature that obviously people already associate with Donald Trump in the first place, the fact that he uh, was so going after and so attacking of the Iran deal was something that really set him apart from other Republicans. And you can be sure that if Joe Biden is his general election candidate, that he will hit him on on the on the Iran deal. Yeah, unfortunately for uh, for President Trump, Gallup has come out and said that even Bernie Sanders would get a majority of American Jews. Yeah, and I, I, listen, yeah, I'm not so sure that will again because of the way this. You know, you, you've heard me say both on the Nachum Siegel Network and in my columns on CNBC that there's no such thing as a national election. In, in in the United States. We don't elect anybody from all 50 states. It's state by state, and then when you move down to Senate or Congress, it's it's state by state or district by district. So it may be true that these polls show a, a general support because Jewish voters tend to be from a 70-30 or sometimes a little bit closer than that will vote for any Democrat um, that Sanders would win that. But would there be a stronger vote in florida for a republican because bernie sanders was the the nominee in some it, of these states or it, in minnesota it, it, well, for like example, well bernie sanders would be death in florida but mm. it's not because of the jews it's because of cuba yep that's right there's, there's those aspects and also i think because of older voters despite the fact that he's so an older candidate himself uh he uh does not do very well among older voters one of the reasons why he lost in south carolina is that the african-american vote in south carolina was also older Right. Uh, typically older than most states, much older than what we saw in New Hampshire and Iowa. Folks, this has been an amazing four-hour broadcast of the uh, and results of the Israeli elections. Uh, again, the headline being that it looks like a big win for Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud party. We will see if the actual results bear that out, but it does seem to be going in that direction. And I want to thank certain people for joining us. I've, already, I've been speaking with Jim Nuzzo just now, who joined us for the entire evening in the studio, afternoon and evening. Mayor Weingarten, who, who was with us. Mayor Furtick, a huge thank you to him for juggling the phones and acting as the producer of this show. Uh, it was just a, a wonderful contribution from him. Stan, our board operator, who's been fantastic for us all night, a very, very special thank you has to go to Avrami Finkelstein in Israel, because not only is he staying up late, and he is staying up late, but it's a holiday in Israel, so he's working on an off day. That really meant a lot to me. And, of course, I thank Nachum Siegel and the general manager of the Nachum Siegel Network, Miriam Wallach, for allowing us to do this tonight and to offer real coverage and real honest analysis of the Israeli elections. I thank you. I hope to see you and speak to you again soon. <laughs>